interview, Fidel pointed to the prisoner negotiations with Donovan as a beginning point for discussions. If the United States wants it, it is the beginning of better relations. A rapprochement was possible if the United States government wishes it, Castro told Howard on camera. In that case, we would be agreed to seek and find the basis for normalizing relations. Publicly, Lisa Howard pushed this angle of her interview. The press materials distributed to promote the broadcast stated that the interview indicates that there is a possibility of a fresh dialogue between the United States and Cuba, however limited and tentative it may be in this highly inflammatory corner of the Cold War. In a subsequent cover story, Castro's Overture, for the liberal journal War Peace Report, Howard wrote that in eight hours of private conversation, Castro had been even more emphatic about his desire for negotiations with the United States. In our conversations, he made it quite clear that he was ready to discuss the Soviet personnel and military hardware on Cuban soil, compensation for expropriated American lands and investments, the question of Cuba as a base for communist subversion throughout the hemisphere. She urged Kennedy to send an American government official on a quiet mission to Havana to see what Castro has to say. A country as powerful as the United States, she concluded, has nothing to lose at a bargaining table with Fidel Castro. Privately, Howard fully committed herself to bringing those negotiations to fruition. To Castro, she conveyed this commitment in an extraordinary letter, a little keepsake, she called it, written to him on Hotel Riviera Stationery on April 27th, after their interview. In her letter, Howard spoke to Castro candidly about her disagreement with the communist direction he had chosen. I disapprove of much of your revolution as it exists today, and wish with all my being that events could have taken a different course. Still, she believed that Castro was among a rare group of men who point the way toward the betterment of the human condition. Howard then made Fidel an offer. And if in some small way I can be privileged to help you play out that role, I shall do all in my power to achieve this end, she wrote. I am going to talk to certain people when I return to the States. I am going to tell them many things. I do not overestimate my influence, but I shall try to help. Ironically, the certain people Howard decided to talk to were Castro's archenemies inside the U.S. government, the CIA. Immediately upon returning from Cuba on April 30th, the CIA debriefed her in Miami on Castro's views. In a secret memorandum given to President Kennedy on May 1st, CIA Deputy Director for Plans Richard Helms reported on Howard's conclusion that Fidel Castro is looking for a way to reach a rapprochement with the United States. Howard already had a list of acceptable intermediaries, Donovan and UN Ambassador Adlai Stevenson among them, to pursue a dialogue, and offered to arrange a meeting for any U.S. government spokesman with Castro through Vallejo, who will be the point of contact. Helm's report concluded, Howard definitely wants to impress the U.S. government with two facts. Castro is ready to discuss rapprochement, and she herself is ready to discuss it with him, if asked to do so by the U.S. government. CIA Director John McCone adamantly opposed this approach to Cuba, as he had opposed all previous initiatives, arguing that it would leak and compromise CIA operations against Castro. A secret letter rushed to the White House the next day conveyed McCone's recommendation that the Lisa Howard report be handled in the most limited and sensitive manner 
and that no active steps be taken on the rapprochement matter at this time. McCone urged only the most limited Washington discussions on accommodations with Castro, and only in the context of the rapprochement track being explored as a remote possibility and one of several alternatives. Exploring the Sweet Approach Despite McCone's opposition, senior White House officials were already evaluating the rapprochement track as an alternative to overthrowing Castro. The catalyst for this debate was Bundy's young NSC deputy for Latin America, Gordon Chase. On April 11th, in a top-secret eyes-only memo to his boss, Chase made an articulate pitch for what he called a quiet policy turnaround on Cuba. We are all concerned about solving our Cuba problem, his memo began, but so far we have been looking seriously at only one side of the coin, ways to hurt Castro by varying degrees of overt and covert nastiness. We have not yet looked seriously at the other side of the coin, quietly enticing Castro over to us. If the sweet approach turned out to be feasible, and in turn successful, the benefits would be substantial. In the short run, we would probably be able to neutralize at least two of our main worries about Castro, the reintroduction of offensive missiles and Cuban subversion. In the long run, we would be able to work on eliminating Castro at our leisure and from a good vantage point. Such a radical reconsideration of U.S. policy toward the Cuban Revolution would not be easily achieved, Chase acknowledged. But, while the practical obstacles to this sort of approach may be immense, he concluded, they may not be insuperable. With Kennedy's hawkish aides pushing him toward more violent solutions to the Cuban problem, Chase suggested, the president might also want to consider the feasibility of a policy turnaround. Just ten days after receiving Chase's memo, Bundy launched a major review of policy toward Cuba. Washington, he argued, had essentially three options. Overthrow Castro, which would probably require direct intervention. Contain Castro while trying to extract major concessions from him by pressure or develop some form of accommodation with Castro. In a memorandum titled The Cuban Problem, Bundy provided the rationale for accommodation. Faint hints of this possibility appear in Donovan explorations and elsewhere. There is always the possibility that Castro or others currently high in the regime might find advantage in a gradual shift away from their present level of dependence on Moscow. In strictly economic terms, both the United States and Cuba have much to gain from re-establishment of relations. A Titoist Castro is not inconceivable and a full diplomatic revolution would not be the most extraordinary event in the twentieth century. By June, the CIA had accumulated intelligence from at least a half-dozen sources besides Lisa Howard, suggesting Cuban interest in a rapprochement with the United States, according to a secret memorandum from Deputy Director for Plans Richard Helms. On June 6th, the special group, the high-level interagency committee responsible for covert action against Cuba, discussed various possibilities of establishing channels of communication to Castro and agreed it was a useful endeavor. The CIA's sources indicated that James Donovan would be acceptable to the Cubans as a negotiator, but Washington would have to take the first step. The U.S. does not understand that Latin pride will not permit Cuba to humiliate itself in the eyes of the world by making the first overture, another diplomatic source indicated, but the United States could, afford to be charitable and take the initiative. 
Most members of Kennedy's national security team were not feeling charitable toward Cuba, however. As they debated Bundy's options during the spring, few of them found the sweet approach very attractive. Secretary of Defense McNamara argued that the elimination of the Castro regime was a requirement, and that if our present policy would not result in its downfall, we should develop a program for approval which would produce changes acceptable to us. Robert Kennedy agreed, calling for a program with the objective of overthrowing Castro in 18 months. McCone argued that Castro's trips to Moscow in April and May had repaired the breach in relations caused by the missile crisis, so there was no longer any opening for negotiations to exploit. Any rapprochement that retained Soviet troops in Cuba and maintained Cuba as a closed society could not be acceptable to the U.S., McCone declared. It would be out of the question. The Latin American Bureau of the State Department was equally recalcitrant. Any accommodation would require the United States to accept the permanence of Castro's communism. The precedent would be established for other communist regimes in the hemisphere, and the whole effort to keep them out of this area and to establish its special status would fall to the ground, the Bureau warned apocalyptically. It could mean the death of the inter-American system. Besides, Assistant Secretary of State Edwin Martin explained, it was no use trying to wean Cuba from Moscow by offering him inducements, because Castro would make promises and not keep them. He did not stay bought. Through meeting after meeting of the NSC standing group, Bundy kept putting the negotiations option back on the table, with some support from Rusk, but he could get no traction with other senior officials. In June, the review of Cuba policy concluded with the approval of a new set of covert paramilitary plans to harass Castro, autonomous operations in which exiles would essentially conduct their own sabotage operations with U.S. financing but not control, even though no one believed they would topple the regime. With the Kennedy White House unwilling to take action on Castro's feelers for a dialogue, Lisa Howard stepped forward and seized the initiative herself. She instigated the first face-to-face -face meeting between U.S. and Cuban officials in the United States, with such diplomatic dexterity that each side believed the other had made the first overture. In September, Howard developed her own trustworthy back-channel into the administration, through a fellow journalist-turned-diplomat, William Atwood. As the former editor of Look magazine, who had once interviewed Castro himself, Atwood knew Howard and shared her belief that improved U.S.-Cuban relations were possible and, from the perspective of U.S. national interests, preferable. At the United Nations, where he was special advisor to Ambassador Adlai Stevenson, Atwood had heard that Castro was unhappy with his Soviet satellite status and would go to some length to obtain normalization of relations with the United States. Howard's War Peace article, which Atwood read, seemed to convey the same sentiment. On September 12th, Atwood and Howard discussed the article on the phone, and Howard convinced him that the Cubans were interested in talks with Washington. The two then hatched a plan to initiate a discreet, secret dialogue between Washington and Havana. Over the next six days, Atwood drafted a two-page memorandum on Cuba for Ambassador Stevenson and Under Secretary of State W. Averill Harriman that laid out the rationale for a low-profile contact with Cuban authorities. The impact of present U.S. policy, he wrote, is mainly negative. A. 
It aggravates Castro's anti-Americanism and his desire to cause us trouble and embarrassment. B. In the eyes of the world, largely made up of small countries, it freezes us in the unattractive posture of a big country trying to bully a small country. Since the United States was not going to overthrow Castro by overt force, why not explore a dialogue? It would seem that we have something to gain and nothing to lose by finding out whether in fact Castro does want to talk and what concessions he would be prepared to make. Atwood concluded. Stevenson liked Atwood's proposal, though he had doubts about whether it would fly. Unfortunately, he told Atwood, the CIA is still in charge of Cuba. But when Stevenson spoke to Kennedy about the idea in New York on September 20th, the president authorized Atwood to contact Cuban officials at the UN. I then told Miss Howard to set up the contact, that is, to have a small reception at her house, so that it could be done very casually, not as a formal approach by us. Atwood would later recall. In the middle of the UN delegates' lounge on September 23rd, Howard approached Cuba's UN ambassador, Carlos Lechuga, and, according to his recollection, said that Atwood wanted to talk to me and that it was urgent. Howard invited Lechuga to come to a party at her Central Park apartment that very evening to meet Atwood. In the midst of cocktails, finger foods, and several dozen members of New York's high society, the first bilateral talks on the potential for a U.S.-Cuban accommodation took place. Standing in a corner of Howard's spacious living room, Atwood and Lechuga conferred on the interest of their respective leaders in what Atwood called an exchange of views. Castro, Lechuga told Atwood, had hoped to contact or get in touch with President Kennedy in 61, and then came the Bay of Pigs, and that was that. But Lechuga hinted that Castro was indeed in the mood to talk, Atwood recalled, and thought there was a good chance I might be invited to Cuba if I wished to talk to Castro. As Lechuga remembers the conversation, it was Atwood who suggested going to Havana, stating that he was about to request authorization from the President to go to Cuba to meet with Fidel Castro and ask about the feasibility of a rapprochement between Havana and Washington. The next day, Atwood met with Robert Kennedy in Washington, D.C., and reported on the cocktail party dialogue. The Attorney General reacted positively, if cautiously. If the United States could get something going of a positive nature with Cuba that would lift the burden of the Bay of Pigs and the whole Cuban mess off of the administration, that would be a plus. Atwood recalled him saying, but it had to be Castro's initiative. It could not look as though the United States was seeking an accommodation. Kennedy worried that the trip to Cuba would be rather risky, said it was bound to leak, and said it might result in some congressional investigation or something. Atwood later testified. Anyway, it might be a problem. But he did think the matter was worth pursuing. So did the White House. Throughout the fall of 1963, a small group within the Kennedy administration explored this new back-channel dialogue with Cuba. This whole operation was very closely held, Atwood recalled. Besides himself, only the President, Attorney General, Bundy, Chase, Stevenson, and Harriman knew of it. Bundy designated Chase to be Atwood's direct contact. Atwood was instructed to tell Lechuga that a meeting in Havana would be difficult in light of my official status, but that he was authorized to meet a high-level Cuban emissary at the UN. 
Lisa Howard offered her home as a communications center for Atwood to send a message via phone directly to Castro through his aide-de-camp, René Vallejo. On October 20th, she placed a call to Vallejo to make certain that Castro knew there was a U.S. official available if Castro wanted to talk. On October 31st, Vallejo reached Howard and conveyed Castro's interest in proceeding. Castro would very much like to talk to the U.S. official any time and appreciated the importance of discretion of all concerned, Atwood wrote in his notes on Howard's report on the conversation. Castro would therefore be willing to send a plane to Mexico to pick up the official and fly him to a private airport near Varadero, where Castro could talk to him alone. To Vallejo, Howard voiced her doubts that a U.S. official would risk going to Cuba. She urged him to consider coming to the U.N. or arranging to meet in Mexico. Vallejo replied that Castro wanted to do the talking himself, but did not completely rule out this situation if there was no other way of engaging a dialogue. Castro's invitation set off a flurry of discussion inside the administration, including the Oval Office. On November 5th, Bundy briefed President Kennedy on Castro's meeting proposal. Bill Atwood has partly generated and partly responded to feelers from Castro and now has an invitation to go down and talk to Fidel about terms and conditions in which he would be interested in a change of relations with the U.S., Bundy told the President. Normally I would not recommend someone so close to us, but Bill does have the advantage that he knows Castro. Kennedy's taping system recorded his concern about how the secret mission would stay secret. How can Atwood get in and out of there very privately? The President asked. Can we get Atwood off the payroll before he goes? Bundy and Kennedy then discussed the need for a cover plan if the trip leaked to the press and the possibility of sanitizing Atwood, retiring him from his U.N. post for at least a month or two before undertaking the secret dialogue. Despite the political sensitivity, Kennedy wanted to move forward, albeit cautiously. As Bundy told Atwood, the President was more in favor of pushing towards an opening toward Cuba than was the State Department, the idea being, well, getting them out of the Soviet fold and perhaps wiping out the Bay of Pigs and maybe getting back to normal. However, it did not seem practicable to send him to Cuba at this stage. The White House preferred to begin with a meeting between Vallejo and Atwood at the United Nations and expected Vallejo to speak to a change in Castro's position on the issues that concerned Washington— an end to Soviet influence and Cuban subversion in the region. As Bundy indicated in a secret sensitive memorandum for the record dated November 12th, reversals of these policies may or may not be sufficient to produce a change in the policy of the United States, but they are certainly necessary, and without an indication of readiness to move in these directions, it is hard for us to see what could be accomplished by a visit to Cuba. Atwood summarized the impasse. The President decided it might be useful for me to go down to Cuba and see Castro, but first we'd have to know what the agenda was. Again, Lisa Howard played the role of facilitator. On November 14th, she told Vallejo that the U.S. preferred a preliminary meeting in New York to set the agenda for any substantive secret dialogue in Havana. She then arranged for Vallejo to talk directly to Atwood on the evening of November 18th. That night, Atwood came to Howard's apartment at midnight. The two spent a couple of hours drinking bourbon, listening to jazz, and talking about Camus, 
as Howard telephoned Havana at least a half-dozen times trying to locate Vallejo. Finally, after 2 a.m., she reached him at his home and handed Atwood the phone. As Atwood reported to the White House, I told him Miss Howard had kept me informed of her talks with him, and that I assumed he knew of our interest in hearing what Castro had in mind. Vallejo said he did, and reiterated the invitation to come to Cuba, stressing the fact that security could be guaranteed. I replied that we felt a preliminary meeting was essential to make sure there was something useful to talk about, and asked if he was able to come to New York. Vallejo said he could not come at this time. However, if that's how we felt, he said that we would send instructions to Lechuga to propose and discuss with me an agenda for a later meeting with Castro. I said I would await Lechuga's call. When Atwood passed this information on to Bundy later that day, he was told that when the agenda was received, the President wanted to see me at the White House and decide what to say and whether to go to Cuba or what we should do next. That was the 19th of November, Atwood recalled, three days before the assassination. Kennedy's Last Effort In the seventy-two hours before his death, President Kennedy himself sent two messages to Castro. The first came in the form of a speech before the Inter-American Press Association in Miami on November 18th. Cuba had become a weapon in an effort dictated by external powers to subvert the other American republics, Kennedy stated. This and this alone divides us. As long as this is true, nothing is possible. Without it, everything is possible. According to White House aide Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., who helped write the speech, Kennedy's language was intended to convey to Castro the potential for normalization. But like so much of Kennedy's Cuba policy, the suggestion of reconciliation came packaged in tough rhetoric. The olive branch was so well camouflaged that the Los Angeles Times headline the next day read, Kennedy Urges Cuban Revolt. Kennedy reinforced his indirect message of possible détente with a more explicit one delivered by French journalist Jean Daniel. Daniel met privately with Kennedy in late October on his way to Havana, a meeting arranged by Atwood to focus the President's attention on Cuba. Kennedy shared with Daniel the point he would make in the speech. The trade embargo could be lifted if Castro ended his support for leftist movements in the hemisphere. The President also expressed some empathy for Castro's anti-Americanism, acknowledging that the United States had committed a number of sins in pre-revolutionary Cuba, including turning the island into the whorehouse of the U.S. Now, Kennedy acknowledged, we shall have to pay for those sins. Danielle observed that the President seemed to be seeking a way out of the poor state of relations with Cuba. Kennedy asked him to come back and see me, after conferring with Fidel. This conversation will be much more interesting when you return. When I left him, Danielle recalled, I had the impression I was a messenger of peace. Danielle passed Kennedy's message to Castro during their first meeting on November 20th, and the two discussed it again as they sat down to lunch on a beautiful day in Baradero Beach on November 22nd. He listened to me intently. He was drinking my words. Danielle recalled in an interview forty years later. Clearly he was happy about the message I was delivering. Sometimes he would say, Maybe he has changed. Maybe things are possible with this man. 
Kennedy could become the greatest president of the United States, the leader who may at last understand that there can be coexistence between capitalists and socialists, even in the Americas, Fidel exclaimed. He asked Daniel to take a message back. So far as we are concerned, everything can be restored to normalcy on the basis of mutual respect of sovereignty. In Daniel's estimation, both Kennedy and Castro seemed ready to make peace. Then Castro received the news that Kennedy had been shot in Dallas. This is terrible, Castro exclaimed. They are going to say we did it. On a radio in the house, the two finally found a Florida station to listen to the reports of the assassination. Angry and shocked, Castro railed about the disgusting and indecent details being broadcast of Kennedy's blood running on his wife's stockings. He turned to Danielle and acknowledged the obvious. This is the end of your mission of peace. I was thinking the same thing, Danielle recalled. If I could not go back and tell Kennedy about my mission, then there was no mission. 3. Johnson Castro reaches out. Tell the President, and I cannot stress this too strongly, that I seriously hope that Cuba and the United States can eventually sit down in an atmosphere of goodwill and of mutual respect and negotiate our differences. I believe that there are no areas of contention between us that cannot be discussed and settled within a climate of mutual understanding. Tell the President that he should not interpret my conciliatory attitude, my desire for discussions, as a sign of weakness. Such an interpretation would be a serious miscalculation. Secret Message from Fidel Castro to Lyndon Johnson, February 1964 Just 72 hours after the death of President Kennedy, White House aide Gordon Chase typed out a top-secret briefing paper on the opportunity that had been destroyed by an assassin's bullet. President Kennedy could have accommodated with Castro and gotten away with it with a minimum of domestic heat, he wrote. Unlike Kennedy, however, Lyndon Johnson had no background of being successfully nasty to Castro during the missile crisis and would probably run a greater risk of being accused by the American people of going soft on communism. In addition, Chase pointed out, the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald had been identified as a pro-Castro type made a rapprochement with Cuba far more difficult. The events of November 22nd, Chase concluded, would appear to make accommodation with Castro an even more doubtful issue than it was. The specter of a Cuban connection to the Kennedy assassination hovered over the new administration. To dispel the growing clamor about an international communist conspiracy, Johnson moved quickly to appoint a presidential commission to investigate whether Lee Harvey Oswald had acted alone. Now these wild people are charging Khrushchev killed Kennedy and Castro killed Kennedy, Johnson told Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren, whom he personally convinced to chair the investigation. But the American people and the world have got to know who killed Kennedy and why. Johnson's political instincts lent themselves to a hard line on Cuba, particularly in an election year in which he expected his Republican opponent to be a hawkish cold warrior such as Richard Nixon or Barry Goldwater. The Cuban situation was one that we could not live with and we had to evolve more aggressive policies, he instructed CIA Director John A. McCone at the end of his first week in the White House. 
In a December 2nd phone conversation with Senator J. William Fulbright, captured by Johnson's secret taping system, the President made it clear that he did not want a repeat of the Bay of Pigs fiasco. I'm just asking you what we ought to be doing to pinch their nuts more than we're doing. A number of the programs Johnson inherited from the Kennedy administration, covert sabotage, exile paramilitary operations, and the trade embargo, would be tools in such pinch policies as the new administration moved to step up economic and diplomatic pressures to isolate Cuba in the region. But despite crises over Cuban involvement in Latin America, confrontation over seized fishing boats, U.S. efforts to regionalize the embargo, and the U.S. invasion of the Dominican Republic to prevent another Cuba, the back-channel communications with Castro continued, eventually reaching into the Oval Office. Despite the new president's disinclination to pursue his predecessor's talks with Cuba, Kennedy's initiative took on a life of its own, as Havana and Washington sustained an ongoing dialogue through intermediaries and third countries. Under Johnson came the first review of the merits and effectiveness of a hostile Cuba policy. Indeed, following the death of Che Guevara in 1967, U.S. officials would begin actively considering options for an alternative, more conciliatory approach to Cuba. Keeping Kennedy's U.S.-Cuba Line Open For U.S.-Cuban relations, the murder of the president could not have come at a worse moment. As Kennedy lay dying at Dallas Memorial Hospital, the Cuban diplomatic pouch was on its way to New York, containing Castro's agenda for a secret meeting on rapprochement, as requested by the White House. Castro's reply came through the day after Kennedy died, proposing an agenda and suggesting these talks. William Atwood recalled. In the turmoil following the assassination, however, there was no mechanism to transmit this message to the Oval Office, and no U.S. policy team prepared to receive it. Only McGeorge Bundy's young national security aide for Latin America, Gordon Chase, seemed able to focus on the potential opportunity for better relations that had been set in motion during the last days of the Kennedy administration. Still unaware that Castro's response had arrived, on November 25th, Chase sought to prepare Bundy, and through him President Johnson, for the possibility of a meeting between Atwood and Cuban U.N. Ambassador Carlos Lechuga to explore Cuba's agenda. We have little or nothing to lose, and there will be some benefits. At a minimum, we should get a valuable reading as to what Castro regards as negotiable, for example the Soviet tie-in, and a hint as to how he views the effect of November 22nd on Cuban-U.S. relations. In fact, Castro viewed the assassination and its impact on Cuba with serious alarm. As his prophecy of, they will say we did it, appeared to be realized, he understood the dangerous implications for Cuba. The death of President Kennedy can have very negative repercussions for the interests of our country, Castro stated in a televised speech on November 24th, adopting a decidedly moderate tone as world leaders gathered in Washington for the state funeral. But in this case, it is not the question of our interest, but of the interests of the whole world. In New York, Ambassador Lechuga told Lisa Howard that he had received a letter of authorization to discuss an agenda for talks with Atwood. Howard passed the information along to her contacts in the new administration. On December 2nd, Atwood and Lechuga crossed paths in the U.N. Delegates' Lounge. Lechuga reiterated that he had been authorized to have a preliminary discussion and wondered how things now stood. 
This was the moment the Kennedy team had worked toward, to find out if common ground existed for a modus vivendi between the United States and Cuba. Atwood's request for instructions set off an internal discussion on how to proceed. The ball is in our court. Bill Atwood owes Lechuga a call. What to do? Chase asked Bundy. On the one hand, we have nothing to lose in listening to what Castro has to say. There is no commitment on our side, Chase suggested. On the other hand, even such a low-level meeting had become politically perilous. Things are different now, particularly with this Oswald pro-Castro business. On the morning of December 3rd, Chase conferred with Bundy about how to move forward. A meeting with Lechuga might be possible, Bundy said, but secrecy was paramount, and a foolproof denial was needed if it leaked. Later that day, Chase provided the National Security Advisor with a top-secret scenario whereby Atwood would get Lechuga to divulge Fidel's instructions and position without actually presenting a U.S. response. Bill Atwood should call Lechuga and make an appointment to see him. At the meeting, he should say the following. A. The new administration has not yet had an opportunity to examine the Cuban question in detail. B. However, in deference to the late President's judgment that it is worthwhile to hear what is on Castro's mind, and in view of the fact that what Castro says may have a bearing on the new administration's eventual assessment of the Cuban situation, I am authorized to hear you out. C. After hearing Lechuga's story, you can rest assured that the information will be passed on to the proper people. If we are interested in further talks, I will let you know. The next day, Lechuga again approached Atwood, telling him he now had a letter directly from Castro approving detailed talks and an agenda. Still lacking instructions, Atwood was forced to put him off. This went on, Atwood recalled years later. I kept seeing Lechuga, and Lechuga would say he was waiting for an answer, and I kept saying, well, the door isn't closed, I just don't know. From the White House, Chase told Atwood that a decision would take time because all U.S. policies, including Cuba, were under review. As President Johnson prepared to travel to New York on December 17th to address the U.N. General Assembly, he read Atwood's comprehensive chronology of the discreet contacts with the Cubans in the fall of 1963. At a luncheon at Ambassador Adlai Stevenson's apartment in the Waldorf Astoria, Atwood recalled, the President told me that he'd read my chronological account of the Cuban initiative with interest. But Atwood received no executive direction on pursuing the talks. Two days later, Johnson convened his first national security meeting to review the status of anti-Castro operations. In preparation, McGeorge Bundy briefed the president on our Cuban problem, where we have been since January 1963, where we are now, and where we seem to be heading. The minimum objective of U.S. policy was to prevent Cuba from being a Soviet satellite or a threat to its neighbors. Toward those ends, the United States had pressured the Soviets to withdraw the majority of their military personnel and was enlisting other Latin American nations to oppose Cuban subversion. The discovery, in early December, of a cache of arms in Venezuela that was traced back to Cuba gave Washington new ammunition to press the OAS to isolate Cuba diplomatically and commercially on the grounds that Castro was fomenting subversion. The CIA was engaged in a series of covert operations designed to stimulate an internal coup against Castro, destabilize the economy, 
and provide secret support for autonomous exile actions of infiltration and sabotage that would begin in January 1964. In theory, Bundy reported, these operations could lead to a degree of disorganization, uncertainty, and discontent in Cuba, such that Castro would be overthrown. But Bundy's briefing also highlighted another potential eventuality. Accommodation with Castro on U.S. terms. U.S. operations against Cuba, Cuba's isolation in the region, and distrust of the Soviets could convince Castro that he has no choice but accommodation. Castro may already be thinking along these lines, Bundy argued to the new president. In the past few months, he has made a number of accommodation noises, and since he undoubtedly has a pretty good reading of our minimum terms, these noises could conceivably indicate he is willing to go a long way toward meeting them. A message to Castro, he suggested, could read like this. Fidel, we are content to let events continue on their present course. We intend to maintain, and whenever possible to increase, our pressures against you until you fall. We are pretty certain we will be successful. However, we are reasonable men. We are not intent on having your head, per se. Neither do we relish the suffering of the Cuban people. You know our central concerns, the Soviet connection and the subversion. If you feel you are in a position to allay these concerns, we can probably work out a way to live amicably together and to build a prosperous Cuba. If you don't feel you can meet our concerns, then just forget the whole thing. There were certain to be problems with this approach, particularly with a skeptical American public and, of course, hardline conservatives. But arguments against coming to terms with Castro could be rebutted, Bundy noted in relatively firm language. Accommodation remains a distinct possibility, if not now, then for later. Amid lengthy discussion of CIA sabotage operations and pressure on the OAS to cut off economic and diplomatic relations with Cuba, the issue of the talks with Castro did come up at the December 19, 1963 National Security Briefing. There had been very tenuous, sensitive, and marginal contacts, Bundy noted obliquely. Washington now faced a decision as to whether or not we are prepared to listen to what Castro has to say. Other than Under Secretary of State George Ball, who noted that U.S. contacts with Cuba could have an unsettling effect on Cuba's relations with the Soviets, nobody voiced support or opposition to continuing the communications. Nevertheless, President Johnson decided to shelve the back-channel talks. The President did not want to appear soft on anything, especially Cuba, Bundy told his aides several days later. The Cuba contacts would be put on ice for a while, Atwood recalls being told in late December. While the door was not closed on further contact with Lechuga, the timing was not now considered right, Chase informed Atwood. In his memoir, The Twilight Struggle, Atwood recalled Chase telling him, It doesn't look like it's going to be continued now, because it's an election year. We'll keep it in mind, but that it was a dead issue. For the first time, but certainly not the last, electoral political considerations undercut an initiative to improve U.S.-Cuban relations. But the U.S.-Cuba line, started during the Kennedy administration, remained open. Key U.S. policy actors, led by Gordon Chase and Adlai Stevenson, refused to let it close. Castro himself continued to pursue it, and secret intermediaries like Lisa Howard, Jean Doniel, and various Latin American governments 
continued their attempts to broker a rapprochement throughout the Johnson years. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD. The Return of Lisa Howard With Kennedy's death, Jean Daniel's role as an unofficial envoy ended. He then reverted to his profession as a journalist and broke the news of the late president's secret message to Castro in a front-page story in the New York Times and a two-part series in The New Republic. His meetings with the two leaders, Daniel wrote in the Times on December 11th, had established, in effect, a dialogue between President Kennedy and Premier Fidel Castro. When told of Kennedy's perspective on Cuba and U.S.-Cuban relations, Daniel reported in The New Republic, Castro suggested that Kennedy had the possibility of becoming, in the eyes of history, the greatest president of the United States, the leader who may at last understand that there can be coexistence between capitalists and socialists, even in the Americas. In Cuba, Castro also sought to call attention to the aborted talks with Kennedy, without actually revealing that they had taken place. In a speech on January 2nd, marking the fifth anniversary of the revolution, the Cuban premier softened his renowned anti-U.S. rhetoric and highlighted the potential for peaceful coexistence. His discussion of the subject of normalizing U.S.-Cuban relations was more extensive than in any prior public speech by Castro, according to CIA analysts, who noted its generally conciliatory tone. Had JFK lived, Castro predicted, an eventual normalization of relations with the Kennedy administration was possible. In a forceful rebuke from Washington, Secretary of State Dean Rusk responded that it was not true that Kennedy planned for any early reconciliation between Cuba and the United States. Undeterred, Castro returned to this theme both publicly and privately. In February, the CIA obtained intelligence from a source close to Cuban Foreign Minister Raul Roa that Castro believed President Kennedy would have gone on ultimately to negotiate with Cuba, not because of any love for Cuba, but rather because of a practical acceptance of the Cuban Revolution as a fait accompli. According to Roa, they believed that Johnson is unaware of his predecessor's activities in this matter, and for this reason is not continuing President Kennedy's policy. To encourage Johnson to finish what Kennedy had started, Castro turned to the back-channel intermediary who had worked so hard to bring Washington and Havana together in the fall of 1963. He invited Lisa Howard to revisit Cuba. In late January, Howard contacted Gordon Chase at the White House to say she was returning to Cuba to do a second major ABC News special on the Cuban Revolution. Did the White House want to take the opportunity to send a message? Given Johnson's disinclination to dialogue with Castro, Chase declined. But, he told her, U.S. officials would be interested in anything Castro had to say. With a camera crew in tow, Howard spent ten days filming in Havana and the Cuban countryside. At Fidel's direction, Che Guevara granted Howard a rare and exclusive interview for the news program Issues and Answers. Major Guevara, she asked, Fidel Castro has often stated he favors normal relations with the United States. Are you also in favor of normalized relations? Absolutely, Che responded, noting that as Minister of Industry, normal trade ties would be particularly beneficial to him. On the basis of principles of total equality, the normalization of relations would be ideal for us. What did he want from the United States, she asked. 
Puffing methodically on his cigar, Che replied, Perhaps the most frank and objective response would be nothing. Nothing for or against us. Just leave us alone. Fidel Castro spent several days with Howard while she was there, leading her on tours of agricultural farms, allowing her to film him playing baseball, and even breaking news to her that he intended to turn off the water at the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base in response to the U.S. Coast Guard's seizure of four Cuban fishing boats and their crews. He agreed to a lengthy on-camera interview, filmed in her hotel suite in the early hours of the morning on February 13, 1964. As the interview got underway, Howard posed a question to which only she, Fidel, and a few others inside the U.S. and Cuban governments already knew the answer. You said at one point after President Kennedy's death that you believed that under Kennedy it was going to be possible to normalize relations between Cuba and the United States. What leads you to believe that? In halting English, Castro answered with careful diplomatic discretion. After three years as President of the United States, Kennedy had much more experience than he had at the beginning, and I think he had a better understanding of the world problems and about Cuba. My opinion is that he was in the way of persuading himself of his mistakes about Cuba. We had some evidence that some change was taking place in the mind of the government of the United States, a new situation, and we had evidence I do not want to speak about now. Off-camera, Castro conferred privately with Howard about sustaining the secret communications with the United States he and she had initiated the year before. He shared his perspective that at some point the U.S. government would have to recognize the reality of the Cuban Revolution and come to the negotiating table. During a long discussion before she returned to the United States, the two worked out a verbal message to President Johnson to encourage him to pick up where Kennedy left off. This secret communique covered four basic points. First, Castro wanted to convey to Johnson that he understood that Cuba would become a political football in the 1964 election and was willing to play along if Johnson assumed a rhetorically hard-line position and even took hostile actions, if they were for domestic political purposes. Please tell President Johnson that I earnestly desire his election to the presidency in November. The message began with a touch of humor. But if there is anything I can do to add to his majority— Aside from retiring from politics, I shall be happy to cooperate. If the President feels it necessary during the campaign to make bellicose statements about Cuba, or even to take some hostile action, if he will inform me, unofficially, that a specific action is required because of domestic political considerations, I shall understand and not take any retaliatory action. Castro promised. Then he tackled the issue of whether Johnson was aware of the dialogue that the White House was pursuing through William Atwood and Lisa Howard at the end of the Kennedy administration. His message recounted what had transpired and reiterated that Cuba remained hopeful that the two nations would eventually resume the secret talks. I'm aware that pre-electoral political considerations may delay this approach until after November. Tell the President, and I cannot stress this too strongly, but I seriously hope that Cuba and the United States can eventually sit down in an atmosphere of goodwill and of mutual respect and negotiate our differences. I believe that there are no areas of contention between us that cannot be discussed and settled in a climate of mutual understanding. 
But Castro wanted to make sure Johnson did not misinterpret Cuba's interest in talks. Tell the President he should not interpret my conciliatory attitude, my desire for discussion, as a sign of weakness. We are not weak, the revolution is strong, and it is from this position of strength that we wish to resolve our differences with the United States. Finally, Castro concluded the message with a pledge of discretion. Tell the President I realize fully the need for absolute secrecy if he should decide to continue the Kennedy approach. I revealed nothing at that time. I have revealed nothing since. I would reveal nothing now. Castro's communique was one of the most sensitive ever transmitted to the U.S. government. It would remain secret for 35 years. Howard agreed that she would personally courier the message to the President of the United States. When she returned from Havana, however, Howard discovered that the door to the Oval Office was closed to her. Given the political sensitivity of talks with Cuba, as well as Jean Daniel's front-page stories, White House officials perceived as folly a high-profile journalist ferrying messages directly from the Cuban premier to the U.S. president. In a Lisa alert, Bundy characterized Howard as an extraordinarily determined and self-important creature who will undoubtedly knock at every door we have at least five times, and warned his colleagues against letting her play this game with us. To obtain Castro's message, however, Gordon Chase adopted a more conciliatory approach. In February, Chase replaced Atwood, who was appointed ambassador to Kenya, as Lisa Howard's primary contact in the U.S. government. Like Atwood, he shared her interest in improving U.S.-Cuban relations. As White House point man on Cuba, he refused to abandon the possibility of a bilateral accord that would benefit both nations. On Saturday, March 7th, Chase traveled to New York for a private debriefing on Howard's trip. The two spent several hours at Howard's East Central Park apartment discussing in great detail Fidel's attitudes and positions, as well as their mutually shared goal of convincing Castro to publicly reject the Soviets and return to the Western camp. For Howard, the meeting offered an opportunity to press her case that the Johnson administration should communicate with Castro. If there was a scenario in which the United States could live with Fidel, she strongly advised, then that message should be conveyed to him, preferably through her. Castro was convinced, she said, that the United States would not be content until we destroy him, and therefore he acted accordingly. Implicit in his present state of mind is the belief that the only alternative he has to the Russians is destruction, she told Chase. A promise of peaceful coexistence, on the other hand, would provide him with a basis for ending his security relationship with Moscow. At the end of their meeting, Chase asked for Fidel's note. Howard refused to give it to him. She would be breaking faith with Castro if she divulged it to anyone but President Johnson, she said. If Fidel has something to say to us, Chase prodded her, then he had apparently not picked a very good messenger. Despite his efforts, Chase left New York City empty-handed. Chastened for undermining her own cause, Howard called Chase the next day to say that she had basically shared the guts of the message to the president, which she described as a firm confirmation of Fidel's eagerness to negotiate a settlement for better relations. While the message did not contain any terms of a rapprochement, she said, Castro obviously had to be aware that negotiations implied a willingness on his part to give something up.
In his top-secret report back to the White House, Chase summed up the central point. Mrs. Howard said that Fidel very much wants an accommodation with the U.S. It is even conceivable that he would kick the Russians out of Cuba if he thought that he could get assistance from us and a credible guarantee that we would not try to destroy him. It was a long shot, Chase argued to Bundy, but this approach could bring about, over time, one of the truly great victories of the twentieth century, the ejection of the USSR from the Western Hemisphere. Energized by his meeting with Howard, Chase began peppering Bundy with detailed position papers on pursuing a diplomatic dialogue with Castro. On March 11th, he recommended an approach to Castro before the November elections, returning to the theme of casting accommodation as a defeat for the Soviets. Obviously, the president could not live with a headline which reads, U.S. accommodates with Castro, Chase argued. On the other hand, he might live superbly with a headline which reads, USSR ejected from Cuba, or USSR Cuba tie line broken. Two days later, Chase sent his boss a top-secret memo, Negotiations with Castro, Possible Scenario First Steps, recommending another approach to Lechuga. The U.S. intermediary would reiterate the administration's position. We only want an end to Cuban subversion and an end to Cuban dependence on the bloc, and would also solicit Cuba's position. What does Castro want? We are reasonable men and are willing to listen. If Castro proved to be interested, Chase recommended, we should keep the negotiations going at a slow pace unless it appears we are going to hit the jackpot, ejection of the Russians. In mid-April, Chase combined all his arguments into a concise two-page top-secret eyes-only memorandum for the record, titled Talks with Castro. He listed three reasons why Washington should pursue a deal that would constitute a magnificent victory for the U.S. First, while it is obviously a long shot, Castro could conceivably buy accommodation on U.S. terms. There is a substantial body of evidence which points to Castro's unhappiness with the present state of affairs and to his eagerness to negotiate a settlement. Presumably, he realizes that he will have to give us something substantial to get such a settlement. Second, talks with Castro will tend to intensify Cuban-Soviet tensions. Third, the disadvantages of talking to Castro appear minimal. There will probably be no leakage in view of the fact that it is also in Castro's interest to keep quiet. If there is leakage, we can probably deny it credibly. For example, this is too funny for words. For those administration officials who would argue that talks were politically risky during an election year, Chase had a ready answer. If Castro felt invested in a dialogue with the United States, he would refrain from brazen action in the region. U.S.-Cuban talks will tend to keep Castro cool during a time when we want the noise level low, he argued. From past experience, it is fair to say that Castro will probably act with a certain amount of restraint if he feels there is a chance we might come to terms with him. Black Channels Chase's depiction of dialogue as a tool for crisis prevention was an attempt to turn necessity into a virtue. In the spring of 1964, Washington policymakers faced a series of real and potential conflicts with Cuba. The few advocates of accommodation found little support among other officials and agencies that were intent on a more aggressive approach. Drawing on evidence of Cuban support for armed revolution in Venezuela and Brazil, 
The State Department, led by hardline Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs Thomas Mann, was mobilizing to pressure the OAS to cut off all regional diplomatic and commercial ties with the island. Isolating Castro, Mann argued to President Johnson, is a hell of a lot better than taking him into our bosom. The Defense Department was consumed by a standoff with Castro over its naval base at Guantanamo Bay. The CIA's focus was on its autonomous operations program of covertly supporting exile sabotage operations. Most ominously, CIA Director John McCone perceived a growing threat that Cuba might shoot down a U-2 spy plane, which could escalate into a major military confrontation. The crisis at Guantanamo evolved out of the Coast Guard's seizure of four Cuban fishing boats in U.S. territorial waters near the Dry Tortugas on February 2, 1964. The Cuban fishermen were first held at a U.S. naval base and then dumped into a small Florida jail in Key West. Cuba immediately protested what it termed the unprecedented, arbitrary, and illegal jailing of the Cuban crewmen, piratically kidnapped by the North American government. Privately, President Johnson fumed that it was a damn fool thing to pick them up. They'd been fishing there up till the last few years constantly, and nobody bothered them. Publicly, however, the president had to flex Washington's muscles. After Castro announced on February 6th that he was cutting off the water to Guantanamo until the fishermen were released, Johnson retaliated by firing, in phases, most of the 2,500 Cubans who worked on the base. Eventually, the fishing crews were released, their captains fined, and the boats returned to Cuba. But the fishing boat flap gave way to a potentially more dangerous situation, Castro's threat to fire on U-2 reconnaissance planes conducting surveillance flights over the island. In March, a few weeks after the Cuban fishermen were detained, the White House received a CIA intelligence report that one of the things Castro thought of doing was to shoot down one of our U-2 planes in retaliation, Bundy told President Johnson. This was extremely interesting and disturbing, and underscored the need to warn Castro on the dangers of interfering with U.S. surveillance aircraft. On March 6th, Johnson instructed Secretary of State Dean Rusk to come up with a plan for appropriate, strong, high-level warnings regarding Castro's itchy finger on the trigger of the surface-to-air missiles in Cuba. The form and transmission of such a warning became the subject of intense debate inside the administration. Should the warning be public or discreet, direct or through intermediaries? Should the Soviets be enlisted to reinforce the message to Castro? Castro scares me because I think he is a man who can regard a threat as credible but still disregard the consequences if his honor and emotion are involved, Gordon Chase argued. We are most likely to prevent a shootdown if our note to Castro is buttressed by a good strong pitch from Khrushchev. But the leading Soviet expert in the administration, Ambassador Tommy Thompson, argued that the Soviets would be forced to formally back Cuba's right to defend its airspace, and any prior notice to Moscow would transform a conflict from a purely United States-Cuban affair into another superpower confrontation. Bundy found this argument persuasive. Secretary Rusk came up with his own recommendations for using indirect channels to alert both the Cubans and the Soviets. The message, in the form of a diplomatic note to Castro, would be sent through the Czech ambassador to Washington. 
Using this method and channel, we can be sure that the Soviets will also get the message without our incurring the disadvantage of making a special direct approach to them. In addition, Rusk recommended using black channels to send Castro a message that could not be traced back to the United States. The black channel message, Rusk suggested, would make three points. A. We have taken very careful note of his recent public statements on overflights. B. We interpret these statements as a threat to shoot down our surveillance flights. And C. We would like nothing better, and we are prepared to react immediately to such an eventuality. On March 27th, the United States passed the diplomatic message to Czech Ambassador Karl Duda, along with the admonition to make sure that there is no misunderstanding about our continuing position on this matter. Secretary Rusk himself raised the issue with Soviet Ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin in late April, explaining that the United States had continued to conduct overflights of Cuba after the missile crisis because Moscow had not been able to obtain Castro's permission for on-the-ground inspection for nuclear weapons. Rusk emphasized that, he was mentioning these matters out of a desire to avoid a major crisis with Cuba, and hoped that the Soviet government will caution Castro not to inflame the situation into a major crisis. Several weeks later, the CIA's Western Hemisphere Division implemented Rusk's Black Channel. On May 8th, a case officer from the CIA's Western Hemisphere Division met with an asset in New York, codenamed J. Mindigo. They discussed how to pass a message covertly to Castro that the United States government is serious about the U-2 flights over Cuba and intends to continue the flights indefinitely. There will be no change in this policy after the November elections. This message would be sent to Castro through one of the more circuitous forms of communication in the annals of U.S.-Cuban dialogue. According to a secret memorandum to CIA's Deputy Director for Plans, Richard Helms, J. Mindigo would exploit his very close personal friendship with an attorney named Michael Standard, who worked at the New York law firm of Budin and Rabinowitz, which represented Cuban interests in the United States. J. Mindigo will give the above-quoted message to Standard on 9 May, doing in such a way that it does not appear to be the reason for the meeting and making it clear to Standard that the information is being given in confidence, stated the report to Helms. J. Mindigo is certain that Standard will immediately give the information to Cuba's U.N. Ambassador Lechuga, who will, of course, relay it to Castro. To verify that, in fact, the communication made it to Cuba, J. Mindigo planned to meet several days later with Lechuga under the pretext of arranging to take a trip to Cuba. The CIA asset would then give Lechuga an opportunity to ask him about the U-2 flights he would confirm that there was reason to believe that the U-2 flights would continue. By giving the information to Standard, a friend, in confidence, and by only half confirming it later to Lechuga, the report to Helms noted, J. Mindigo will have made the information believable to the Cubans and will not have placed himself under as much suspicion. If in the future there is any need to pass additional information via this channel, the memo concluded, J. Mindigo would be in the position to do so. The Lisa Castro-Stevenson-Johnson Line In the end, it was not the CIA's circuitous clandestine black channel, but a high-level back channel between Castro and Johnson that resolved the threat of a shootdown. 
This new communications channel was provided by the indefatigable Lisa Howard, who finally achieved at least indirect access to the Oval Office. As she continued to try to present Fidel's verbal message directly to President Johnson, Howard did battle with the national security bureaucracy to keep her hand in the game of clandestine diplomacy. In April and May, she frequently made late-night calls to Gordon Chase, whom she correctly perceived as an ally in the cause of normalization, to report on her upcoming ABC television special on Cuba and Castro Today, which aired on April 19th, as well as her conversations with Fidel and his top aide, René Vallejo, about the undelivered message to Johnson. On May 1st, she called to say that Fidel was very angry these days, and that probably one of the reasons was that he has never received any response to his message to President Johnson, Chase reported to Bundy. Lisa Howard called to needle me about her desire to see the President, Chase reported again on May 4th. She went through her routine about the President not wanting to see her. I went through my routine about the fact that she had every opportunity to give her message to me and that her refusal to do so was indefensible. On May 15th, Howard called yet again and roundly scolded me and the White House for taking her message from Fidel to the President as a joke, Chase reported. I assured her we didn't. Stymied at the White House, Howard turned, once again, to the United Nations, communicating directly with UN Ambassador Adlai Stevenson, who had played a pivotal part in initiating the talks between William Atwood and Ambassador Lechuga nine months earlier. In early June, she convinced Stevenson to deliver to President Johnson the lengthy, typed message from Castro that she had carried back from Havana in February. Stevenson attached a cover memo to the President, dated June 16th, and stamped Top Secret, describing the talks that had started under Kennedy and suggesting that some form of dialogue could be renewed outside of normal channels. Howard, Ambassador Stevenson advised, is convinced that Castro sincerely wants some channel of communication. If it could be resumed on a low enough level to avoid any possible embarrassment, it might be worth considering. In a follow-up memo to the President on June 24, marked Secret and Personal, Ambassador Stevenson passed along an important message from Castro about the U-2 overflights. Nothing will happen to our planes, and we do not need to send him any warnings. It stated, Indeed, Castro pledged that there will be no crisis until after the November elections, Stevenson reported. He will use utmost restraint and we can relax. Castro felt that all of our crises could be avoided if there was some way to communicate. Castro assumed that he could call Howard and she call me and I would advise you. When a Marine at Guantanamo shot a Cuban guard, Castro used this back channel to inquire if the incident had been an isolated act or a provocation. After discussing the issue with President Johnson, Bundy authorized Stevenson to tell Howard to tell Castro that there was no U.S. government plan to provoke incidents at Guantanamo. The episode was contained. Now, for the first time in the post-revolution history of U.S.-Cuban relations, there was a functioning back channel between the Oval Office and Castro's office that Chase dubbed the Castro-Lisa-Howard-Stevenson-President line of communication. But Howard's singular success in creating a secret bridge between the highest levels of the U.S. and Cuban leadership proved to be short-lived. In a memorandum to Bundy on July 7th, Chase laid out a comprehensive argument for removing her from this sensitive role.
We should be clear that the latest developments add at least two new factors to the situation, which make Lisa Howard's participation even scarier than it was before. Chase wrote, One, for the first time during the Johnson administration, Lisa has been used to carry a message from the U.S. to Cuba. Before this, the Johnson administration had relatively little to fear from Lisa, since, essentially, we were just listening to her reports on and from Castro. Two, Lisa's contact on the U.S. side is far sexier now, Stevenson, than at any time in the past, Atwood and then Chase. While I'm in favor of having a channel to Castro, I would feel somewhat safer if we could find a way to remove Lisa from direct participation in the business of passing messages, Chase noted. He recommended that Bundy authorize a message to Stevenson stating that future messages to and from Cuba should be passed not through Howard, but directly from Stevenson's office to Lechuga. From that point onward, Howard participated in no further transmission of messages between the White House and Fidel Castro. Castro Reaches Out In the early summer of 1964, Fidel Castro took steps to address a looming threat to any positive change in U.S.-Cuban relations, the pending publication of the Warren Commission report on the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Fearing that the commission would accept allegations that Cuba was somehow involved, Castro secretly sent a message to Washington that he wanted to meet before the report was finalized. The whole thing was hush-hush, recalled former Secretary of Transportation William T. Coleman, Jr., then a young lawyer on the commission staff who was chosen to undertake the highly sensitive secret mission of meeting Castro on his yacht off the coast of Cuba. For three hours they had what Coleman described as a pretty animated conversation, a conversation kept secret for almost half a century, during which he grilled Castro on any possible Cuban complicity, which Castro denied. When Coleman returned to Washington, he briefed Chief Justice Earl Warren. I came back and I said I hadn't found out anything that would cause me to think there's proof he did do it, he reported. As the summer progressed, Castro escalated his efforts to reach out to the Johnson administration. On July 5, 1964, the Cuban leader initiated what the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research described as the strongest bid to date for a U.S.-Cuban rapprochement. In an interview with New York Times reporter Richard Eder, Castro proposed extensive discussion of the issues dividing Havana and Washington. He offered to halt assistance to Latin American revolutionaries if the United States halted exile operations to release political prisoners, and eventually indemnify U.S. corporations for expropriated properties, if an accommodation could be reached. Fidel even accepted his share of the blame for the breakdown in U.S.-Cuban relations. There was the passion and extremism that characterizes the initial phase of any revolution on our part, he told Eder. Look, the truth is that neither of the two countries, neither the United States nor us, did very much to prevent things having gotten to this point. Two weeks later, Raul Castro reinforced this message, holding a rare news conference in which he declared that Cuba might consider dropping its precondition that the embargo be lifted before a dialogue with Washington could take place. Despite our repeated announcements of our desire to discuss problems, so far we haven't received any definite answer from the United States. Cuba, he said, was willing to meet the U.S. negotiators any place to discuss improving relations, 
even the moon. Castro's decision to reach out reflected his heightened concern over the inherent danger of conflict with the United States. In February, he passed an extraordinary proposal to Swiss Ambassador Emil Stadelhofer to send to Washington. The Cuban government is willing to release 20,000 political prisoners in exchange for a pledge from the United States government that there will be no invasion of Cuba and that Cuba will not be molested by the United States. Stadelhofer asked Gustavo de los Reyes, a recently released prisoner who was going into exile, to courier this message to State Department officials. According to the memorandum of conversation of Reyes's meeting in Washington, he reported that he asked Stadelhofer why Castro wanted such a pledge, since President Kennedy had made such assurances at the end of the missile crisis. Stadelhofer replied that the Cuban government did not know whether this assurance carried over to the administration of President Johnson. In March, the CIA reported on intelligence from a source inside the office of Foreign Minister Raul Roa that Castro sincerely desires to enter into negotiations with the United States with the aim of reducing tensions between the two countries. Castro had held a meeting with ambassadors from other Latin American countries in Havana, in which he proposed to halt involvement in any revolutionary plots in or against Latin American countries if the Latin American countries would stop conspiring against him. Castro seemed ready to deal. To assure that Washington got the message, Castro also made this commitment to Britain's ambassador to Havana, Adam Watson. In July 1964, Castro took Watson and his wife to visit farms in the Cuban countryside. The two talked specifically about how to arrive at a relaxation of tensions with the United States. Castro voiced the opinion that Lyndon Johnson was a moderate and realistic man, and that world peace depended on his election in 1964 over Barry Goldwater. Toward that goal, he had made the gesture of moving Cuban troops back from the periphery of Guantanamo to avoid any petty clashes. After the elections, he noted, it ought to be possible to arrange for further unilateral gestures by both sides, which would lessen tension. It ought to be possible to arrive at a position where the Americans did not object to their friends improving their relations with Cuba, and indeed saw advantages for themselves in this. Castro specifically asked Watson to report his views to the British government, including his recognition that he would have to reduce or give up those of his international activities which were particularly upsetting to the U.S. In August, Watson submitted an eight-page report laying out his assessment that Castro seemed ready to negotiate a modus vivendi with Washington. I regard it as quite wrong to say that Castro would only like to normalize relations on his own terms. On the contrary, he has been making very serious efforts through diplomatic and other channels to find out what the American terms may be after November. I believe that he is getting himself ready to swallow as much of them as he can, bitter though they may be. Castro does not seem to be thinking in terms of a treaty or pact. Not only would such a contract be almost impossibly difficult to negotiate, it would be still harder to verify and lead to endless recriminations. I think Castro would like to proceed, as he sees Mr. Khrushchev and President Johnson proceed, by a series of parallel unilateral actions. I have the impression that he would like an understanding that both sides would reduce their activities directed against the other's position until such activities have substantially ceased.
The British Foreign Ministry forwarded this communication to Washington, but the NSC and the State Department discounted Watson's report, as well as Fidel and Raoul's public statements. We cannot accept Castro's promise that he will stop his subversion, Bundy's NSC aide, Robert Sayer, advised. His whole record is one of broken promises and duplicity. We do not believe a communist will renounce the world revolution. Moreover, he added, Castro's interest in improving relations with Washington to ease Cuba's economic woes is further evidence that inter-American policy on Castro has been effective. U.S. officials also dismissed Castro's peace proposals as a crass effort to undermine momentum for an impending OAS resolution being pushed by the United States and Venezuela, which would regionalize the U.S. diplomatic and economic embargo. Responding to the discovery of a cache of arms that was traced back to Cuba in December 1963, Venezuela had filed a formal request for a meeting of consultations to sanction Cuba. Throughout the spring and early summer of 1964, the State Department aggressively pushed for a harsh condemnation and regional sanctions. At the July 26th meeting of Latin American foreign ministers, the OAS voted 15 to 4 to terminate diplomatic and commercial relations with Cuba. Castro responded that same day in his annual July 26th speech with the Declaration of Santiago, affirming Cuba's right to support revolutionary movements in all those nations which engage in similar intervention in the internal affairs of our country by supporting U.S. sanctions. Chile, Uruguay, Bolivia, and Mexico voted against the OAS resolution, but only Mexico refused to abide by it and break relations with Cuba. In Havana, Mexico was heralded for standing up to U.S. pressure. But the Mexican government's move to resist the U.S.-orchestrated sanctions was not quite the nationalist maverick decision it seemed. Since late 1960, the Mexican government had pursued a dual-track policy toward Cuba. The strength of the Mexican left and its solidarity with the Cuban Revolution, President López Mateos explained to CIA Director Alan Dulles during a secret meeting in January 1961, compelled Mexico to maintain economic and political ties to Cuba and not take any overt effort to undermine or overthrow the regime. But, he promised, Mexico also would be willing to work with the United States beneath the table. Secretly, Mexico supported the Bay of Pigs operation by briefly lending its territory as a staging ground and allowing the CIA to house the political leaders of the exile brigade in its capital city. At the same time, the Mexican government tried to broker a modus vivendi between Havana and Washington before the attack. Mexico would not cease in its efforts to bring peace and harmony to the hemispheric family in which Cuba rightfully holds a place of distinction, López Mateos declared in September 1960. On at least three subsequent occasions, his government extended offers to Presidents Kennedy and Johnson to act as an interlocutor for better relations with the Cuban Revolution. As the United States organized the region-wide embargo of Cuba at the OAS, Mexico pressed for a deal to safeguard its position as a regional broker and bridge to the island. Just before the OAS vote, the United States, Brazil, and Mexico made a secret pact to assure that one OAS country, Mexico, would maintain relations with Cuba. Not even President Johnson knew that Secretary of State Rusk had orchestrated an exception to the regional isolation of Cuba. 
In November 1964, when Johnson was preparing to meet Mexico's new president-elect, Gustavo Díaz Ordaz, he asked Rusk whether he should complain about Mexico's decision to maintain relations. Oh, I would not play that up very much, Rusk responded. The background on that is that during our foreign minister's meeting in late July, a number of us, Brazil and others, talked about the practical desirability of having one Latin American embassy there, if possible. And so the hemisphere is fairly relaxed about the Mexicans staying there. All right, that's good. President Johnson responded. Che Guevara Comes to Town In the aftermath of the OAS vote, the prospects for a U.S.-Cuban dialogue seemed non-existent. Now that Latin America had joined the U.S. embargo, the Johnson administration focused its attention on further tightening the economic screws by pressing European allies to reduce or terminate their commercial relations with Cuba. U.S. efforts to undermine and overthrow Castro, however, suffered a major international embarrassment on September 14, 1964, when the lead exile paramilitary group in the CIA's Autonomous Operations Program, the Movimiento Revolucionario Rebelde, attacked the Spanish freighter Sierra Aranzazu off the coast of Cuba, mistaking it for the Cuban merchant ship Sierra Maestra. The attack killed the captain, first mate, and chief engineer, and injured eight other crewmen. It created a significant diplomatic scandal and generated a major reevaluation within the administration of the wisdom of continuing the CIA's clandestine support for paramilitary operations. Indeed, the Aranzazu incident, as it was referred to in secret NSC records, marked the beginning of a slow, protracted shutdown of active CIA support for violent anti-Castro exile activities. Faced with pressure to reduce its core sabotage programs, the agency conceived the concept of a clandestine set of messages to top Castro officials. During a meeting with NSC and Pentagon aides on November 10th, CIA Operations Director Desmond Fitzgerald suggested a black-channel approach to Cuban President Osvaldo Dorticos in an effort to drive a wedge between him and Castro. The idea was to get a message to Dorticos in an unattributable, deniable fashion that there could be no modus vivendi with Castro, but the United States might well be able to live with Dorticos. According to Fitzgerald, a move like this could conceivably produce a big dividend. At best, it will start Dorticos plotting. At worst, if Castro finds out, it will help to sow some seeds of dissension and distrust. The CIA planned to bring the communications proposal to the special group, the high-level interagency committee that approved clandestine operations. Fidel had his own creative ideas about communicating with the Johnson administration used the occasion of Che Guevara's visit to the United States to transmit a message of interest in better relations. On December 9th, Guevara arrived in New York to give a major speech before the U.N. General Assembly. His presentation was fiery, forceful, and very anti-imperialist, denouncing the United States for creating an international of crime throughout Latin America and intervening throughout the Third World. While Che was speaking, a team of Cuban exiles fired a bazooka at the U.N. building from a small boat in the Hudson River. The assassination attempt only added to the cachet of Che's visit. Over the next five days, Guevara took New York City by storm. 
He did several major media interviews, including an appearance on the CBS News show Meet the Press. With his entourage, he went to the theater to see a new film on the presidency of John F. Kennedy, and he attended an Upper East Side soiree held in his honor at the home of Lisa Howard. For Howard, Che's visit represented the final opportunity to reinsert herself as an intermediary and advance her quest to bring Cuba and the United States together. On the morning of December 15th, she placed an excited phone call to Gordon Chase at the NSC. Che Guevara has something to say to us, and Howard was in a position to arrange a meeting. She pressed Chase to jump on a plane and rush to New York, but he demurred. The Johnson administration, he responded, would be interested in hearing what Che had to say outside of the public limelight. Howard's offer to arrange a meeting with Guevara set off a substantive high-level discussion inside the administration about whether and how to respond. Under Secretary of State George Ball, Assistant Secretary of State Thomas Mann, his deputy John Crimmins, and Chase conferred on three problems. How to ascertain if this is Lisa Howard building bridges or a real interest from Guevara to talk. How to meet with him secretly and securely and how to circumvent Howard, who Chase felt was so subjectively wound up in rapprochement that one would never know what Guevara is saying and what Lisa is interpreting. This could be a Lisa-generated operation, Chase told State Department officials, but he laid odds, probably seven to five, that Guevara, in fact, would like to talk to us. The mechanics of talking to Guevara would be the tough part. He is a real center of attention in New York, for example, police, crowds, and it would be extremely awkward to try and get together with him privately. U.S. officials settled on a convoluted scheme to use a British diplomat at the U.N. to approach Guevara on December 16th using this script. An American colleague informs me that a press source has told him that you have something to say to an American official. My American colleague is not at all sure of the accuracy of this report. And finally, is it true? If Che answered no, then the issue was over. But if he answered yes, then the British official would convey the U.S. interest in setting up a meeting by saying, I got the distinct impression that my American colleague is willing to listen to what you say, but I would have to check back with him to make sure. The State Department would then set up a safe and secure meeting at the U.N. between Guevara and one of Ambassador Stevenson's deputies. The approach is worth it only if it can be done without showing eagerness, Chase reported to Bundy. My own guess is that there is little Guevara has to tell us that we don't already know, but a listening session might be interesting. On December 16th, Lisa Howard returned to her use of cocktail diplomacy, throwing a reception at her East 74th Street apartment for Guevara. The soiree drew the denizens of New York's literati, including Norman Mailer, who arrived noticeably intoxicated. All the women were sitting at Guevara's feet, recalled one party-goer, as Guevara waxed eloquently about socialism and revolution. Among the invitees was the liberal Democratic senator from Minnesota, Eugene McCarthy. As the crowd thinned late in the evening, Guevara and McCarthy sat down to talk privately. McCarthy listened as Guevara described the economic and political situation in Cuba, Cuban support for revolution in Latin America, 
a necessary mission for the Cuban government since revolution offered the only hope of progress, and Cuban views on the United States. By the time the evening was over, the senator left with the impression that Che's overall interest was to establish better relations with the United States. The next morning, Howard called Adlai Stevenson at the UN and suggested that he talk privately with Guevara. Stevenson was all hot to go on this, Chase reported. Undersecretary Ball, however, refused to authorize the meeting. After learning about the Che-McCarthy cocktail encounter, the State Department also canceled the British approach to Guevara to set up a clandestine meeting. Later that day, Senator McCarthy came to the State Department to be debriefed by Ball and Assistant Secretary Mann on what Che had to say. According to a classified summary of their meeting, the senator believed the purpose of the meeting was to express Cuban interest in trade with the U.S. and U.S. recognition of the Cuban regime. But U.S. officials appeared more preoccupied with chastising the senator for talking to this prominent Cuban representative without authorization. Ball emphasized the danger of meetings such as that which the senator had had with Guevara because there was a suspicion throughout Latin America that the U.S. might make a deal with Cuba behind the backs of the other American states and that could provide a propaganda line useful to the communists. It was essential, Ball admonished, that nothing be publicly said about the McCarthy-Guevara meeting. With that, the U.S.-Cuba contacts, first initiated under the Kennedy administration, came to an anticlimactic end. The Camarioca Crisis Throughout 1964, the Johnson administration continued to press forward on efforts to pinch Cuba economically, diplomatically, and militarily. In early 1964, the administration tightened the embargo, curtailing the sale of food and medicine by requiring exporters to get licenses from the Commerce Department, few of which were ever granted. The move to limit food sales came in response to a political attack launched by the conservative senator from New York, Kenneth Keating, against Cuban efforts to purchase $2 million worth of lard. The sale, Keating claimed, would have a significant impact upon the foreign policy and international interests of the United States. National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy's office asked the Department of Agriculture to provide an analysis of the uses of lard in hopes that some ominous strategic purpose could explain U.S. action to block the purchase. Cuba could be expected to use 100% of any lard it gets for edible purposes. An aide reported back. It would probably not be credible to take the line that we have decided to stop shipments of lard because it is not solely a food. The administration also took steps to crack down on travel to Cuba, pressing Latin American nations to prohibit their citizens from going to the island and, for the first time, prosecuting U.S. citizens who had violated the travel ban initiated just after Washington broke diplomatic relations in January 1961. The prosecutions generated a significant internal debate over the freedom to travel, pitting the Attorney General of the United States, Robert Kennedy, against the State Department and the White House. For Kennedy, prosecuting idealistic students who were hell-bent on traveling to Cuba seemed both impractical and un-American. There was no way to really stop U.S. citizens from traveling to Cuba, he warned Secretary of State Rusk. 
Eventually, the Justice Department would face prosecuting hundreds of America's youth. Moreover, restricting Americans' right to travel went against the freedoms that he had sworn to protect as Attorney General. Lifting the travel ban, he argued, would be more consistent with our views as a free society and would contrast with such things as the Berlin Wall and communist controls on such travel. Kennedy's position won support at the State Department Legal Office. The present travel restrictions are inconsistent with traditional American liberties, two of the department's leading lawyers submitted to Rusk. But other State Department officials opposed lifting the ban because the United States would appear hypocritical in its efforts to isolate Castro in the region. The debate ended with the president. In May 1964, Bundy presented Johnson with an options memo to decide the fate of travel to Cuba. There were two distinct schools of thought on the travel issue. Robert Kennedy's desire to end controls on the basis of our libertarian tradition and the difficulty of controlling travel, and current U.S. policy to enlist other Latin American nations to isolate Cuba politically and culturally and to prevent their nationals from going to Cuba. Johnson chose to sustain the ban and to prosecute those who violated it. Tightening the embargo damaged the Cuban economy, reducing the standard of living and prompting a new wave of migration. During the 1962 Missile Crisis, the United States terminated all flights to and from the island. Thereafter, Cubans had no safe, legal, organized way to leave. Instead, they were forced to either hijack boats or risk their lives crossing the Florida Strait on rickety rafts. Hijackers received a U.S. Coast Guard escort when they arrived in U.S. waters and a hero's welcome at the docks of Key West in Miami. Rather than establish a legal immigration process, which would require negotiations, agreement, and cooperation with the Cuban government, the Johnson administration preferred to promote the image of Cuba as a repressive regime by leaving Cuban migrants no option but illegal departure. Castro responded on September 28, 1965, by unleashing an exodus from the port of Camarioca, the first of several immigration crises he would generate over the years. Any Cuban who wanted to could leave, he announced dramatically, and boats from Florida could come to pick them up at Camarioca. In a direct challenge to Washington to negotiate normal immigration procedures, he declared, Now the imperialists have the word. We are going to see what they do or say. U.S. officials attempted to punt the issue back to Castro. If the Cuban leader has any serious proposal to make, there are diplomatic channels readily available, declared the State Department on September 30th. Behind closed doors, the White House considered options on how to respond. Castro's vague and ambiguous proposal to allow people to leave by boat, State Department officials warned Bundy, was an attempt to turn the propaganda tables upon us because of Washington's reluctance to accept massive numbers of refugees. But the United States could still win the propaganda war, Cuba desk officer William Bowdler advised Bundy. If the exodus was large enough, it would have a disruptive effect on the regime economically and politically, and Washington could point to the vast numbers of people wanting to flee the island to tarnish the image of the revolution. Moreover, by accepting tens of thousands of Cubans, we will preserve our image as a haven for oppressed people.
he wrote. President Johnson agreed, signing a new immigration bill at the foot of the Statue of Liberty on October 3rd, Johnson announced an open-ended embrace of Cuban refugees, a policy that would remain unchanged for three decades. We Americans will welcome these Cuban people, stated the President, for the tides of history run strong, and in another day they can return to their homeland to find it cleansed of terror and free from fear. Only three days later, Bundy authorized a diplomatic note to Cuba to kick off the negotiations on modalities. Swiss ambassador to Havana, Emil Stadelhofer, would act as the go-between. The administration proposed to provide transportation for several thousand refugees a month, starting with immediate relatives of Cubans already in the United States, then political prisoners, and then all other persons in Cuba who wish to live in the United States. With hundreds of small boats already traversing the Florida Strait toward Camarioca, the Johnson administration suggested that both governments discourage the disorderly movement of individuals during the negotiations. The Cuban government countered with an October 12th diplomatic note calling for a flow of 12,000 refugees a month. Castro roundly rejected Washington's effort to place political prisoners on the list of eligible refugees. Indeed, Cuba rejected the very concept of U.S. lists. Cuba would determine who would be allowed to leave. Havana identified the airfield at Varadero Beach as suitable for a refugee airlift and noted that the Cuban side is ready to begin at any moment. On the evening of October 14th, Castro met with Ambassador Stadelhofer and raised a series of issues that U.S. officials labeled more communications hanky-panky. The Cuban leader was concerned that the U.S. Coast Guard was detaining boats returning from Cuba with refugees, discouraging the sea lift that Cuba had set in motion. He also wanted the Immigration Accord to establish a legal deterrent to illegal immigration involving the theft of boats. The State Department drafted a series of responses for Stadelhofer to present to Castro, focusing on stopping the small boat traffic as a disorderly, irregular, and dangerous method of transportation, and blaming Cuba's propaganda broadcasts for continuing to stimulate it. The talks almost broke down on October 19th, when Castro sent an angry diplomatic note to the Swiss embassy, blasting the administration for resorting to imputations and insinuations that are an open affront to Cuba, and warning that Cuba would consider it useless to continue an exchange of notes that give promise of no practical solution. By then, the sea lift from Camarioca had escalated dramatically, with some 300 Cubans arriving daily in Florida. The dramatic exodus mobilized the Johnson administration to propose an agreement providing a safe, legal means of departure for emigres. The U.S. proposal reiterated a refugee level of 3,000 to 4,000 a month, leaving through an airlift at Varadero, regulated by checklists and immigration inspectors, to be continued indefinitely. After conferring with Castro on October 27th, Ambassador Stadelhofer cabled the State Department that the agreement was practically accepted by the Cubans. The next day, the Cuban Interior Ministry announced that the port of Camarioca would close that very night to further refugee traffic. But closing the port created a new humanitarian problem. 
more than 400 boats and 2,000 refugees were left stranded at Camarioca. On the morning of November 5th, Baudler reported to the White House, Cuban Foreign Minister Raul Roja asked Stadelhofer for us to bail them out of their problem. Later in November, the remaining refugees were extracted from Camarioca via an official U.S. government sea lift. The 1965 Migration Agreement marked the first formal diplomatic accord negotiated between Washington and Havana since the Revolution. As such, the State Department suggested it should handle the rollout, to downplay its importance. There is considerable speculation that the agreement on refugees may presage a thaw in U.S.-Cuban relations, McGeorge Bundy advised President Johnson's press secretary, Bill Moyers. I think the noise level on this kind of accommodation speculation will be lower if state releases the notes. On November 6th, however, the White House announced the agreement on the Cuban refugee airlift. I am pleased with the understanding which has been reached, read the statement from President Johnson. Starting on December 1st, the U.S. government initiated two daily flights five days a week between Miami and Baradero. During their first year of operation, the flights carried 45,000 Cubans to the United States. By the time the airlift ended in April 1973, a total of 260,737 Cubans had safely immigrated under the November 1965 Immigration Accord. Within a year of arriving, all of them were eligible to become permanent U.S. residents under the Cuban Adjustment Act a special immigration law passed on November 2, 1966, assuring that all Cubans would be granted U.S. residency and hence a path to citizenship. Third Country Intermediaries In April 1967, Secretary of State Dean Rusk met with Chilean Foreign Minister Gabriel Valdez at an economic summit in Punta del Este, Uruguay. During a recent trip to Cuba, Valdez said he had noted differences of view in Havana about relations with the United States, which might be open to probing. Rusk reiterated the U.S. position that Cuba could find its way back to the hemisphere by severing military association with Soviets and ending interference in the affairs of other Latin American states. The internal organization of Cuba was not the crucial obstacle. I told Valdez I saw no objection to any most secret probes which he might wish to undertake, and that if he got anything of interest coming back, we would be glad to know about it. The secretary cabled his ambassador in Santiago, Ralph Dungan, to alert him to the discussion. I further said that I would set up this special channel between you and me in order to assure maximum secrecy and that he could be entirely frank in passing on to you, and to you alone, anything that develops. In the mid-1960s, various countries played the role of assertive intermediaries between Washington and Havana. At times, they pressed the United States government on their own initiative. At other times, Castro used friendly nations to pass along messages of conciliation. Washington also used third countries. Besides Mexico, Great Britain, Canada, and Franco-Spain offered their good offices to bring Washington and Havana closer together. As a follow-up to British Ambassador Adam Watson's extensive discussions with Fidel Castro in October 1964, 
Foreign Minister Patrick Gordon Walker quietly offered to act as a middleman for a dialogue between the U.S. and Cuba. The White House resisted the British offer, but Her Majesty's government persisted. In March 1965, London sent instructions to its Washington embassy to feel out the Johnson administration on joint UK-Canadian-US talks about Cuba policy that would examine options open to the West. They may regard the talks as the first step in a process to move us toward a relaxation of current pressures on Cuba, Cuba desk officer John Crimmins reported to Assistant Secretary Mann. The talks took place on March 17 and 18, 1965. The British representatives forcefully advanced the argument that Castro would end his subversive practices in Latin America if he got something meaningful in return. The British advocated offering increased contact with the West in exchange for Castro's good behavior. But the Johnson administration refused to budge. Gordon Chase, John Crimmins, and William Bowdler presented the counter-argument. Relaxation would reduce pressures on Cuba to break with the Soviets, give Cuba political and economic respectability, and demonstrate to Latin American nations that the Cuban model was worthwhile after all. The meetings gave us an opportunity to educate the British and Canadians to our side of the story, Chase reported to Bundy and hopefully to persuade them that we are really not madmen when it comes to Cuba. Spain also offered its good offices. Despite its fascist ideology, the Franco regime maintained strong economic, political, and cultural ties to Castro's Cuba. Between 1964 and 1967, the Spanish foreign ministry undertook a series of clandestine efforts to facilitate talks between Washington and Havana. In the spring of 1964, Castro's representatives approached officials in Spain for assistance in arriving at a modus vivendi with the United States. Soon thereafter, Spanish diplomats in Paris arranged for one of the more bizarre secret meetings to ever take place between U.S. and Cuban officials. At a Parisian café on April 22nd, two CIA officers, a Spanish official and Cuba's ambassador to France, Antonio Carrillo, sat down to talk. Carrillo presented himself as a personal representative of Fidel Castro, empowered to discuss the possibility of a rapprochement. His government was willing to discuss issues with the U.S. when we felt we could do so, according to a report on the conversation. The CIA's main interest in Carrillo was as a potential defector. The agency informed the White House that they were not pushing for action on the rapprochement issue. But they also advised that if the president wanted to pursue rapprochement talks via the Paris route, the White House should make the decision soon, while the Carrillo contact was still warm. Before any follow-up could occur, however, the story of Cuba's efforts to enlist the Franco government as an intermediary leaked to the New York Times. On May 22nd, the Times' Madrid bureau reported that Cuba is putting out feelers for an arrangement with the U.S. Based on anonymous sources, the article cited hints from Cuban diplomats in Madrid that Castro wanted an improvement in Cuban-U.S. relations. The same day, ABC News ran a story citing a document ostensibly being circulated by Cuban diplomats that outlined the contours of a rapprochement. The United States would close Guantanamo. 
Cuba would commit not to intervene in revolutionary struggles in Latin America, the United States would make a non-intervention pledge and cut off support for violent exiles, Cuba would open negotiations on compensation for expropriated property, the United States would lift the blockade, and the United Nations would oversee implementation of these accords. The leak generated serious concern among senior White House aides and quickly curtailed CIA contacts with Carrillo. This leak seems to confirm my own previous hunch that the Paris activity is not the safest way to do business. We may want to consider drying it up now, Chase reported to Bundy. If we want to continue, we should consider using the Lechuga Channel, which could easily be opened up again. Generally speaking, he added, I think we should lie low for a while. Three years later, in the fall of 1967, it was the Johnson administration that took the initiative to enlist Spain to ferry a message to Cuba. During a meeting with Spanish Foreign Minister Fernando Maria Castilla in mid-November, Secretary of State Rusk raised the issue of Spain's direct access to Castro. It would perhaps be beneficial, Rusk suggested, if they were to remind Castro that there are only two issues in our relations with Cuba which we regard as non-negotiable. One, Cuban intervention and guerrilla activities in Latin America, and two, the presence of Soviet arms on Cuban soil. The U.S. had no interest in interfering in Cuba's internal political situation, Rusk stated clearly. As Castilla reported back to Madrid in a cable stamped Estrictamente Confidencial and titled Secretaria del Estado Dean Rusk Sugiere Gestión Española Cerca de Fidel Castro, Rusk then paused and added, Perhaps Castro would want to reconsider these questions. Spanish embassy officials understood Rusk's suggestion to be an official request to assume the role of intermediary. Their understanding was explicitly reinforced by a follow-up conversation between the Spain and Portugal desk officer, George Landau, and a Spanish embassy attaché. This was the first time the Secretary of State had formally expressed this idea, Landau said. Rusk had been motivated to make this suggestion by the discretion, tact, and generosity with which Spain could undertake such a delicate mission to approach, in the service of peace, countries with which she is a reliable friend. Back in Madrid, however, the foreign ministry decided to ask Ambassador Marie de Valle to reaffirm that Washington actually intended for this sensitive message to be brought to Havana. The embassy received confirmation from Rusk's office that it should proceed. To assure there was no misunderstanding, on November 18th, Deputy Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs Foy D. Kohler cabled his counterpart in the Spanish Foreign Ministry. We confirm, repeat confirm, the intention of Rusk's words with respect to Cuba. Mr. Rusk would appreciate it if, at a time and manner that seems most opportune, you could pass his statements on the American position to the Cuban Prime Minister. In late November, Franco's foreign ministry sent a secret envoy, veteran diplomat Adolfo Martín Gamero, to Havana to deliver this special message to Castro. For three and a half hours, they talked over dinner at a protocol house in the Havana neighborhood of Bedado. The message was accepted with evident interest, the envoy reported in his first dispatch, and has had an undoubtable effect, as we predicted. 
Castro expressed his profound thanks to the Spanish government for this friendly gesture. He promised to keep the mission and the message absolutely secret. The two also spent the next day together, riding around the countryside in Castro's jeep. From our conversations, it is clear how surprised and interested Fidel is, Martin Gamero advised in a second report. Castro said he wanted to analyze carefully the motives and timing of the message before responding, but promised to maintain discretion and to use the same channel for any response he may decide to make. On December 22nd, the Spanish report on the special message reached President Johnson's desk. In a cover memo, Special Presidential Advisor Walt Rostow both minimized and misrepresented the nature of the State Department overture, blaming Spain for being overzealous. The Spaniards have taken what Secretary Rusk intended to be a low-key reminder to Castro of our position and, for self-serving reasons, escalated it to a special message delivered by a special envoy. He complained. If it leaked out that the U.S. has taken the initiative in putting out accommodation feelers to Castro, it may prove embarrassing to us in Latin America and on the domestic political front. But as long as there are no leaks, Rostow noted, this may prove to be an interesting and useful exercise. But the special message yielded no further results. On July 15, 1968, Spanish Foreign Minister Castilla and his envoy, Martin Gamero, personally briefed Secretary Rusk on the status of the mission. Castro had been pleased with the information, Martin Gamero related, but said he would have to wait for some signs from the U.S. When Rusk asked what kind of signs Castro expected, Martin Gamero responded that Castro had not provided any specifics. Since the message was delivered, nothing had been heard from the Cubans, Castilla noted. Rusk then suggested that Spain might take steps to find out if the Cubans consider this issue still alive. Only one day later, however, the Johnson administration called off the Spanish overture. An aide to Rusk, Robert Sayre, met with a Spanish official, Nuno Aguirre de Carcer, and informed him that the United States did not believe it would be useful for the Spanish to hold any further conversations or make any further approaches at this time. This is the end of the CD. The audiobook continues on the next CD. Positive Containment Rethinking U.S. Policy Secretary Rusk's recruitment of Spain to carry a feeler to Castro followed, by only a few weeks, a rare but significant victory in Washington's ongoing low-intensity war against Cuba. In early October 1967, the CIA and a U.S.-trained special unit of the Bolivian military captured and executed Che Guevara in a mountainous region of southern Bolivia where he had been leading a small band of insurgents. We are 99% sure that Che Guevara is dead, Rostow reported in a secret memorandum to the president on October 11th. The elimination of Guevara, he informed Johnson, would have a strong impact in discouraging would-be guerrillas in Latin America. Indeed, the loss of Guevara undercut his model of insurgent warfare in Latin America and led to a hiatus in Cuba's active role in the region. Che Guevara's death was a crippling, perhaps fatal blow to the Bolivian guerrilla movement and may prove a serious setback for Fidel Castro's hopes to foment violent revolution in 
all or almost all Latin American countries, noted the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research. At a national memorial service for his fallen comrade, Castro angrily declared that those who sing victory over Guevara's death would be mistaken to think that his death is the defeat of his ideas, the defeat of his tactics, the defeat of his guerrilla concepts. But not until the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua more than a decade later would Cuba again provide significant support to another Latin American insurgency. Cuban subversion was one of the two major issues that, as Secretary Rusk had told the Spanish, were non-negotiable in U.S. policy toward Cuba, the other being Havana's military ties to the Soviet Union. Guevara's fatal failure could not help but create an opening for proponents of a different policy approach to Cuba. Moreover, Che's demise corresponded with evolving international circumstances that forced a change in the administration's focus on the island. By mid-1967, the domestic and foreign catastrophe known as Vietnam had begun to overwhelm Washington. As the war effort faltered and public pressure mounted on President Johnson to reduce America's overt military presence in Vietnam, the CIA received orders to dramatically escalate its covert operations in Indochina. The reprioritization of the CIA's mission, budget, and manpower meant that it would have to close its largest and most expensive outpost in the world, the CIA station in Miami. Although it would take five years to fully dismantle the station, the decision to do so meant that the heyday of CIA-sponsored exile operations against Cuba was over. Nor were there any prospects of Castro being overthrown by internal forces. Organized internal resistance to the Castro regime has been eradicated, and, aside from an occasional isolated act of sabotage, internal security has ceased to be a serious problem, declared a 1966 Current Intelligence Weekly Special Report. Barring Castro's death or disability, the present regime will maintain an unassailable hold on Cuba indefinitely. Faced with these realities, the Johnson administration undertook the first substantive Cuba policy review since the regimen of covert operations, trade sanctions, and multilateral efforts to isolate the island had been put in place by Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy. After six years, it is only prudent to ask whether this policy will be the best means of advancing our national interests, the State Department's Policy Planning Council advised Secretary of State Rusk. A review of our Cuba policy seems very much needed. In mid-May 1967, Rusk authorized a national policy paper, NPP, on strategy towards Castro's Cuba. Over the next 14 months, the NPP Working Group on Cuba, made up of analysts from the State Department, CIA, NSC, and Department of Defense, DOD, and chaired by Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, Viren P. Pete Vakey, conducted a wide-ranging comprehensive evaluation of current and potential approaches to dealing with the Castro regime. Among the potential alternatives that the review seriously examined was the opportunities and risks involved in seeking some accommodation. Officially titled National Policy Paper Cuba, United States Policy, the review presented a logical step-by-step -step analysis that contradicted both the popular wisdom and the propaganda of the era. Castro is in full control, and Cuba is still a one-man show, the study acknowledged. But since the Guevara fiasco, 
He had shown little public interest in the export of revolution. Moreover, relations with the Soviet Union were not good. Fidel Castro, these analysts understood, has no intention of subordinating himself to Soviet discipline and direction, and he is increasingly disagreed with Soviet concepts, strategies, and theories. Even so, as long as Castro needed security against feared U.S. intervention, it would be hard to wean him away from Soviet support. Castro deeply mistrusts and fears the U.S., and sincerely believes that the U.S. is implacably hostile to him and bent on his eventual overthrow, the authors reported. Accordingly, Castro's reflex is to view the U.S. and anything it does in the worst light and with the greatest suspicion. In this context, Washington's preconditions for improving relations, that Cuba terminate ties with Moscow and end support for revolutionary groups in Latin America, had no chance of being met. It was unrealistic to expect Castro, unilaterally and in advance, to change policies and orientation so fundamentally, as it would be to expect the U.S. to do the equivalent in reverse, the authors pointed out. As long as Castro remains convinced that the U.S. is his major enemy bent on his destruction, he is unlikely to take any such major steps voluntarily. So, unless the Johnson administration wanted to overthrow Castro by force, it needed to exchange its punitive policy for a more effective approach. To determine what that approach should be, the task force posed five policy questions. 1. Is Castro's overthrow indispensable to achievement of vital U.S. objectives, or could these be met even though the Castro regime survives indefinitely? 2. Is Castro's overthrow possible without U.S. action? If not, is the U.S. prepared to use force? 3. Is an accommodation on terms satisfactory to the U.S. possible or worth seeking, or is hostile coexistence the only feasible modus vivendi? 4. What would be the minimum which U.S. interests would require for a tolerable modus vivendi? 5. Are there any still good reasons to retain the present isolation economic denial policy? On the first question, the analysts were unequivocal. Eliminating Castro was not indispensable to U.S. interests. Cuba's activities in the hemisphere did not represent a mortal national security threat, nor were they likely to become an unmanageable problem. On the second question, the lack of wisdom of continuing attempts to overthrow Castro by force was self-evident. Years of CIA covert and paramilitary operations had failed to do anything but further entrench the regime. Ever bigger sabotage missions ran the risk of escalating into open warfare, which could lead to a superpower confrontation with the Soviets and a serious increase in world tension. The United States would be condemned around the world for unprovoked aggression. Finally, the Cuban people would reject U.S. intervention and rally to the nationalist cause of the revolution. It is frankly very questionable whether the U.S. can achieve satisfactory long-range rehabilitation of Cuba by coercion from the outside, the study candidly acknowledged. Since the regime was not going to collapse on its own and open intervention would be too costly, the United States faced two basic policy options continuing a static state of perpetual hostility, or pursuing a modus vivendi. 
Continuing the policy of what the study termed the hostile adversary concept meant that Washington would maintain its policies of diplomatic isolation, economic denial, and maximum external pressures to foster internal upheaval. But in an argument repeated throughout the study, the authors noted that Washington's power to isolate Cuba politically and economically had diminished and would diminish further. Forewarning the eventual rebellion of European and Latin American allies against the embargo, the authors noted that the political cost to the U.S. of discouraging other nations from trading with Cuba is increasing, while its ability to convince them to follow that course is lessening. The current policy is a negative and reactive one, which merely holds the line and offers limited promise of encouraging desirable change in Cuban policies. As an alternative to passive containment, the analysts recommended positive containment, an effort to create a more relaxed atmosphere through threat reduction, diplomatic engagement, and various carrots to persuade Fidel to modify his bad behaviors and meet U.S. interests. Under the positive containment scenario, the United States would maintain the trade embargo as a bargaining chip and continue efforts to stem Cuban subversion in the region. But to those sticks would be added the controlled relaxation of U.S. pressures and other carrots with the goal of fostering a more constructive modus vivendi. Positive containment would advance the economic and cultural magnetism of the U.S. and the promises of economic political benefits which Cuba could gain from more rational behavior. For the first time, U.S. government officials suggested a people-to-people -people strategy, noting that consideration should be given to increasing selectively non-official contact with Cuban society and to project patience and friendliness toward the Cuban people. The United States would drop the demands for Castro to sever ties with the Soviets and cease revolutionary activities in Latin America as preconditions for talks. Instead, those demands would become longer-term goals, to be arrived at through a succession of quid pro quos that both countries would undertake, essentially a form of what the Clinton administration would, years later, call calibrated response. According to the policy paper, a series of parallel steps, each side moving on its own but in response to the other, in the coming months and years, could evolve like this. Castro's quids. Continued repatriation of U.S. citizens. Tone down anti-U.S. propaganda and attitude. Release political prisoners. Begin cessation of support to insurgents in Latin America and effective evidence of this. Stop guerrilla training in Cuba. Willingness to enter talks on indemnification of U.S. business interests. Willingness to break military tie with Soviets. U.S. quos. Grant licenses for commercial shipment of drugs and pharmaceuticals on a more lenient basis. Tone down hostile propaganda. Selective relaxation of travel ban both ways. Permit U.S. foreign subsidiaries to trade. Permit full commercial trade in drugs and pharmaceuticals, possibly foodstuffs. Public declaration by U.S. officials that the U.S. will not intervene in Cuba. Permit additional U.S. trade in consumer goods and some industrial equipment. Propose to OAS that relations be renewed. Willingness to unfreeze Cuban assets, 
and relax all restrictions on financial transactions. Offer non-aggression pact, accept back into OAS, facilitate equipment of Cuban armed forces with U.S. or European equipment. Using positive containment to foster a more relaxed atmosphere in U.S.-Cuban relations had a number of policy advantages. If Washington extended the olive branch, Fidel would be put on the defensive and no longer able to use the U.S. as a scapegoat for his regime's problems. Indeed, even if Castro proved unresponsive, Washington could dangle these carrots in front of members of the top echelon of his regime to convey the idea to such elements that it would be in their interest to effect a switch in policy that could make possible a thaw with the U.S. under the terms envisaged. These approaches would be made quietly and, in more specific form, covertly. The National Policy Paper finished with a series of taskers to the CIA, DOD, State Department, and U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, to implement the new strategy. These agencies would begin to create the general atmosphere for subsequent probes and avoid any new manifestations of an abrasive attitude toward Havana. They would foster the message, through subtle propaganda, that Washington was not hostile toward the Cuban Revolution, only its aggressive external conduct. The State Department would use foreign diplomatic channels to assure Castro that the United States would be willing to reach a reasonable accommodation. Finally, contingency plans would be drawn up for lifting the trade embargo and reintegrating Cuba into the OAS. This was the preferred strategy, the study concluded. It offered a far better chance of advancing U.S. national security interests than continuing the hostile adversarial policy toward Cuba in place since the beginning of the 1960s. A Policy Vacuum These were radical recommendations, a true departure from the conventional wisdom of how to rid the hemisphere of Fidel Castro and his revolution. Predictably, those who supported the status quo of sticks over carrots quickly tried to stymie any new approach. After a draft of the National Policy Paper began to circulate in June 1968, Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, Covey Oliver, sent a memorandum to the Chairman of the Policy Planning Board, Henry D. Owens, cautioning against implementing most of its recommendations. Cuba's economy was deteriorating, he argued, and the regime faced growing external and internal pressures. With real doubts as to the viability of Castro's future, Oliver advised, now was not the time to convey a seeming signal that we have finally accepted the permanence of the Castro regime. The State Department's Office of Inter-American Political Affairs also weighed in, arguing that this is not the most propitious moment to embark on such a program as Cuba's present economic straits and the signs of growing discontent would indicate that the pinch of isolation is having a real effect. Over at the CIA, officials sought to appropriate the task force's recommendations of communications with top Cuban leaders to advance their institutional interest in regime change. At an August 15th meeting, the top CIA officers on Latin America, including Western Hemisphere Chief William Brough and veteran Cuba operative David Atlee Phillips, suggested a covert approach to Cuban leaders around Castro to assure them the U.S. had no wish to abrogate or wipe out the gains of the Cuban Revolution. 
the CIA would then offer to support them in any post-Castro regime if they would take timely action that would expedite the removal of Castro as the regime's leader. Both Byron Vakey and Kobe Oliver objected that the discussion of Castro's removal was not appropriate. But the meeting continued to focus on the issues of negotiating with Cuba. There was a worldwide impression that secret negotiations were in fact going on between Cuba and the United States, Phillips reported. He noted that the CIA had maintained a secret facility, presumably in a third country, that could be used in future communications with the Cubans. Should we attempt to open up and pursue a dialogue, or should we close it down immediately? Phillips asked. Assistant Secretary Oliver responded that a freeze should be put on any further talk and that it merely be indicated to the Cubans that the channel should be kept open for their use if they so desired. If asked by Cuban intelligence officers, Oliver suggested, the CIA should say that the ball was in the Cuban court and that channels for negotiation existed. At the end of the meeting, the CIA and the State Department decided to create a small study group to consider the question of what exactly we should do next about Cuba. In the waning months of the Johnson administration, Cuba policy was in a state of flux, both confused and becalmed, as Phillips described it. Major covert operations were being dismantled, secret messages were still being passed through various channels, and an internal effort to reframe the overall policy approach toward Cuba from passive to positive containment was underway. But the dramatic planning paper for moving toward a more enlightened diplomatic posture was never formally processed for approval, a State Department memorandum noted only a few days before the November 1968 presidential election. Instead, it was decided that it should be considered by the new administration. 4. Nixon and Ford Kissinger's Caribbean Détente It is better to deal straight with Castro. Behave chivalrously. Do it like a big guy, not like a shyster. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger to his aides, April 1975 At 2.32 p.m. on April 24, 1974, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger took a phone call from Frank Mankiewicz, a longtime Democratic Party operative. That trip I told you about is now on, to the Caribbean, Mankiewicz said, as Kissinger's secret taping system recorded his cryptic remarks. I told you I might be doing a television interview with... Kissinger immediately understood. Yes, yes, I know exactly, of course. Good. Then I want to see you. I must see you before you do that. Nine weeks later, when Mankiewicz and two colleagues, Saul Landau and Kirby Jones, traveled to Cuba, they carried with them a short, handwritten, unsigned note from Kissinger to Fidel Castro. This is the way I did it with Chow and Lai, Mankiewicz remembers Kissinger saying when he gave him the letter. The message stated that the Secretary of State was anxious to discuss bilateral issues and that such discussions should be held discreetly through intermediaries. This is a very serious communication, and we will, of course, consider it very carefully, Castro said after reading the message in his study. When Mankiewicz returned from Cuba, 
he carried a secret reply from Castro, as well as a box of premium Cuban cigars, Fidel's official gift for the U.S. Secretary of State. So began the most serious effort to normalize relations between the United States and Cuba since Washington broke ties with Havana in January 1961. Kissinger's message set in motion a protracted effort to achieve an opening to Cuba comparable to the opening to China, an effort to extend the Nixon-Kissinger strategy of détente with the Soviet Union to its communist ally in the Caribbean. Over the next 18 months, emissaries traveled back and forth between Washington and Havana, and Kissinger's deputies quietly met with Cuban officials in airport lounges, New York hotels, and private homes to discuss the issues that divided the United States and Cuba. It is better to deal straight with Castro, Kissinger instructed his assistants, taking a position on Cuba that had not been heard before from a high-ranking U.S. policymaker. Behave chivalrously. Do it like a big guy, not like a shyster. Let him know we are moving in a new direction. We'd like to synchronize. Steps will be unilateral. Reciprocity is necessary. Nixon and Castro Kissinger chose to initiate contact with Cuba during the waning weeks of the Nixon administration, when all attention was on Watergate. I don't think I even told President Nixon, he would later admit, because Nixon disliked Castro intensely. As vice president in April 1959, Nixon was the highest U.S. official ever to meet with Castro. But although Nixon's report to President Eisenhower made it clear that he was impressed with Fidel's charisma and leadership qualities, Nixon would later write in his memoirs that he emerged from that meeting as the leading advocate for overthrowing Cuba's revolutionary regime. As president, Nixon took a hard line toward Cuba. When a prominent exile attempted to contact the new president only eleven days after the inauguration, Kissinger sent Nixon a memo suggesting that the State Department handle all meetings with the exile community. I disagree, Nixon wrote at the bottom of the memorandum. State has handled this with disgusting incompetence. Their careerists are pro-Castro for the most part. Early in his first term, Nixon specifically directed the CIA to come up with a new plan to put paramilitary pressure on Cuba. When the agency resisted such operations as unfeasible, Nixon sought to unleash the violent exiles running raids into Cuba from the shores of Miami. We should not inhibit Cuban exile activity against their homeland, he wrote in the margin of an article about Coast Guard action to arrest members of the terrorist exile group Alpha 66, effectively ordering U.S. law enforcement agencies to ignore the Neutrality Act. I had the distinct impression from the President, CIA Director Richard Helms reported to Attorney General John Mitchell that he rather favors some anti-Castro activity by this Alpha 66 group. Despite Nixon's known antipathy for dealing with Cuba, in February 1969, Castro initiated a discreet approach to the new administration through the good offices of Switzerland's embassy. Only ten days after Nixon's inauguration, the Cuban leader called in Swiss Ambassador Alfred Fischli for a 40-minute meeting. Cubans were illegally leaving the island through the U.S. base on Guantanamo, Castro said. He did not want to build a Berlin Wall around the base, and implied that he hoped the Nixon administration would block this avenue of escape. 
He asked Ambassador Fischli if he thought Washington would be willing to cooperate with Cuba in thwarting plots by Cuban exiles to introduce hoof-and-mouth viruses into the Cuban cattle industry. He complained about U.S. intervention in Latin America, but offered a hint that Cuba was willing to curb its support for revolutionary movements by noting that we should all stop interfering. As Fischli told Secretary of State William P. Rogers in Washington on March 11th, Castro asked him to convey a message that he was interested in establishing a discussion of such issues, presumably with the view toward edging toward a détente. Castro's exploratory effort set off the first policy discussion within the Nixon White House on dialogue with Cuba. Cuba's initiative was an opportunity, Kissinger's NSC deputy, Byron P. Vakey, advised. Other recent Cuban actions reflect a more moderate attitude toward the U.S. than has been the case, and there definitely appears to be an overall pattern suggesting a bid for a détente. On April 4th, in a secret action memo to the President titled Cuba, Message from Castro Suggesting a Desire for Détente, Kissinger made the first effort to convince Nixon that a cautious probe could benefit the administration. In fact, Kissinger told the President, putting out a feeler to Castro now would keep open the option of a dialogue, should you wish to use that approach at a later time. Nixon, however, refused to check either approve or disapprove. Instead, he scrawled at the bottom of the document, A very, very cautious probe. With this restrictive approval, the State Department drafted a short response for Ambassador Fischli to give to Castro. It would be appreciated if the ambassador could ask Castro to explain more precisely, one, what he may have in mind as regards the parameters or nature of any contact or dialogue, and two, whether he has in mind specific or limited subjects. Typed on plain paper, this message was passed to the Swiss ambassador to Washington, Felix Schneider, on April 11th. Meeting with Undersecretary of State U. Alexis Johnson and Byron Vakey, Schneider reported on additional meetings between Fischli and President Osvaldo Dorticos in Havana. The two had discussed issues of concern to both Cuba and the United States, among them plane hijackings, Guantanamo, and some 20 U.S. citizens held in Cuban prisons. According to Schneider, the Cubans seemed pleased with this ongoing interchange and considered the Swiss a desirable channel through which to establish a dialogue. But this promising start was cut short by Nixon's opposition. In September, Kissinger convened an NSC task force to review options on Cuba policy, among them force, isolation, carrot and stick, and normalization. The normalization option of seeking negotiations without preconditions on a wide-ranging improvement in U.S.-Cuban relations was immediately ruled out because of, as Kissinger reminded top CIA, DOS, DOD, and NSC officials, the overture through the Swiss, which the president stopped. So, too, were the options of using a proactive carrot and stick for constructive change in relations, as Vakey's national policy paper had recommended at the end of the Johnson administration. During a meeting with his top aides at Camp David on September 27th, Nixon reiterated that he wanted to follow a very tough line on Cuba, and he did not want to hear press speculation that we were considering a new policy. When such speculation arose in the international media several months later, 
The White House had the State Department send a cable to U.S. embassies in Latin America to squash the rumor-mongering about an accommodation with Cuba. Cuba policy remains unaltered. There are no, repeat, no conversations underway or contemplated between the USG and the Cuban government concerning a modification of the present relationship. In March 1970, Nixon called both his national security adviser and his CIA director, Richard Helms, to the Oval Office. To Helms, Nixon posed the question of whether he should change Cuba policy. The president pointed out that he was under pressure from Canada and certain other countries to ease up on Castro and possibly to enter into diplomatic relationships somewhere down the road, Helms recorded in his notes. Nixon went on to say that the State Department was advocating some change of policy such as this. Helms reinforced Nixon's hardline instinct. I told the President that I thought we should continue the present policy of keeping Castro isolated and of applying economic sanctions against his country. I pointed out that Cuba was costing the Soviet Union a million dollars a day, and that if indeed the President wanted to cause the Soviet Union headaches, this was one way he had within his power by doing nothing. You have convinced me, Nixon declared. Six months later, when socialist Salvador Allende was elected president of Chile, Nixon and Helms revisited the question about whether, as Nixon put it, we should hold course on Cuba or should we start being nice to Castro. The president made his preference clear. My conviction is very strong that we cannot relent in our policy towards Cuba. Nixon insisted, if we throw in the towel on the Cubans, the effect on the rest of Latin America could be massive, encouraging them, encouraging communists, Marxists, Allende, or call it what you will, to try for revolution. For most of his first term, Nixon forcefully held the U.S. government to that uncompromising position. His hand was strengthened by the short-lived superpower confrontation in the fall of 1970, with distinct echoes of the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis over Soviet efforts to build a support base in Cienfuegos Bay that could service Soviet nuclear-armed submarines. But even after Kissinger deftly resolved that conflict diplomatically, the issue of better relations with Cuba continued to surface, put on the agenda by other Latin American nations. In December 1971, as Nixon prepared for a private meeting with Brazilian President Emilio Medici, Kissinger briefed him on Brazil's request to be alerted to any future dialogue with Castro that might portend a different U.S. approach toward Cuba. I'm not going to change the policy, Nixon vehemently responded during this conversation, recorded by his secret taping system. Nixon, I've said I'm not going to change the policy. Kissinger, I know. Nixon, I'm not changing the policy towards Castro as long as I'm alive. Kissinger, all right, well then. Nixon, that's absolute, final, no appeal whatever. I never want you to raise it with me again. The Hijacking Accord Nevertheless, the national interest in fighting terrorism in the skies would compel Nixon to communicate, negotiate, and cooperate with Cuba. During his presidency, skyjacking emerged as a significant problem. Between 1961 and 1967, 17 planes were hijacked to Cuba. In 1968 alone, the number jumped to 29. 
with 19 of the flights originating in the United States. Between 1968 and 1972, the number of plane hijackings worldwide rose to 325. Of those, 173 were diverted to Cuba. Since the early days of the revolution, the Cuban government had worried that air piracy would become a bilateral issue between Washington and Havana. In his August 20, 1961 meeting with Richard Goodwin in Montevideo, Che Guevara noted that Cuba had not been responsible for the spate of U.S. planes commandeered to Cuba by political sympathizers of the revolution. He is afraid that if these thefts keep up, it will be very dangerous, Goodwin reported. For its part, Cuba wanted the United States to return exiles who used violence to hijack planes and boats to escape the island. In an exchange of diplomatic notes in July and August of 1961, the Cuban government first proposed a mutual accord to return all hijackers to their country of origin. The Kennedy administration rejected this petition. Eight years later, with a dozen hijackings to Cuba in the first two months of 1969 alone, the new Nixon administration secretly approached Cuba about returning the perpetrators to the United States. Quietly, Cuba began to expel some hijackers to third countries and encourage others to leave. But the global epidemic of air piracy put Cuba in the international spotlight as a destination for plane pirates. On September 19th, the Cuban government announced a new law. Cuba would now prosecute or extradite all foreign hijackers. Extradition, however, would take place only with countries that had negotiated a bilateral anti-hijacking accord with Cuba. The highly publicized law appears to be a major gambit by Cuba, Vironveki advised Kissinger, not only with respect to the hijacking situation, but perhaps in terms of relations with us as well. Cuban Vice President Carlos Rafael Rodriguez had referred to the new law as an opportunity to build a new modus vivendi between the two countries. The quid pro quo, which Castro presumably intends to exact, is not clear and may give us trouble, Vecchi noted, referring to Cuba's demand for reciprocity. That meant the United States would have to treat Cuban exiles who had hijacked planes and boats as criminals and return them to the island. However, we believe the Cuban decree could represent a significant step and are considering how best to respond to it. Soon the Department of State was sending secret diplomatic notes through the Swiss Embassy trying to find a neutral solution to returning U.S. hijackers from Cuba. But Nixon refused to budge on what Kissinger termed the troublesome reciprocal elements, Castro's demand that the United States return Cuban hijackers. The 1969 effort to arrive at a formal anti-hijacking accord ended without resolution. In both word and deed, however, Cuba continued to signal its willingness to find a solution to airline hijackings. Cuba has now become one of the best-behaved of the hijacking states since it immediately allows the planes and passengers to return and often jails the hijackers, the NSC reported in October 1970. It recently returned its first hijacker and offered to return all hijackers, provided we do the same a commitment we cannot make because of the political asylum aspect. After a particularly violent set of criminal hijackings in October and November 1972, including one in which a guard was killed and the hijackers extorted $2 million from Southern Airways, Fidel Castro again took the diplomatic initiative. 
On November 15th, Radio Havana announced that the Cuban government was ready to take such steps which might lead to the adoption of a broad agreement with the United States to deter future hijackings. Within a day, Secretary of State William P. Rogers replied, the U.S. government was prepared to negotiate an arrangement regarding hijacking and other serious crimes which may be committed in the future. It would also consider favorably any arrangement and location for such talks that would expedite agreement. The Cubans reacted expeditiously. Nine days later, Cuban officials met with the Swiss ambassador and formally presented a draft treaty on hijackings. On the basis of equality and strict reciprocity, it read, both governments would punish with ten to thirty years of imprisonment any person who seizes, takes control of, appropriates, or diverts an aircraft or other vessel. In a clause on violent exile operations in the United States, the draft accord also obliged both countries to pursue and severely punish those persons who were using its territory to promote or plan acts of violence or depredation against aircraft or vessels of any type. Over the next eight weeks, the Swiss embassy in Havana conveyed messages back and forth, and by mid-February, the two countries had arrived at a formal agreement. Hijackers and anyone engaging in violence against planes or vessels would be either prosecuted or extradited, as the Cuban draft had proposed. The one exception, insisted on by the United States, was for political refugees who commandeered a vessel without engaging in violence. For Fidel, signing the anti-hijacking treaty served multiple interests. The hijackings put Cuba in a negative international spotlight as a haven for terrorists. Forcing the United States to prosecute or return Cubans who hijacked boats or planes could serve as a deterrent for violent seizures of Cuban vessels. Moreover, counterterrorism cooperation could address Cuba's leading national security concern, violent counter-revolutionary operations by the anti-Castro exile community in the United States. Finally, as Che Guevara pointed out to Richard Goodwin in August 1961, an agreement on air piracy was one of those subordinate issues that could pave the way for talks on a modus vivendi between Washington and Havana. But President Nixon explicitly opposed any possibility of improved relations. Indeed, from the start of the talks, Nixon feared that an anti-hijacking accord would be interpreted as a change in Washington's overall posture of hostility toward Cuba. On February 13, 1973, as Secretary Rogers presented the President with the final language of the accord, Nixon's secret Oval Office taping system picked up his continuing anxiety about this issue. Nixon does it get into anything in terms of normalization of relations? Because that's the only thing that would concern me. If you could cover that, because I don't want the Cuban community to go up in a... up in a... Rogers. What I would say is that it doesn't change any policy, as far as Cuba's concerned. Two days later, as Rogers announced the new accord, he went out of his way to state that cooperation on hijacking did not signal a thaw in relations. The bilateral agreement, he explained to reporters, does not foreshadow a change of policies as far as the United States is concerned. Kissinger's Cuba Initiative Increasingly, Henry Kissinger came to disagree with that position. 
His assessment of Cuba policy evolved from his first months in office as National Security Advisor, when he tacitly sided with Nixon's hardline approach, to mid-1973, when Kissinger became Secretary of State and found the Cuba controversy high on the agenda of the U.S. Congress and the inter-American community. In 1969, he was skeptical of the claim that the benefits of our present policy are declining because of rising costs. By 1973, he was convinced of it. Quite simply, the new Secretary of State realized that sustaining an outdated U.S. approach to Cuba created far more policy problems for Washington than advantages. At home, public support for continuing sanctions was waning, and the U.S. Congress was threatening to pass legislation lifting the embargo. Domestically, the Cold War consensus to sustain a hardline posture against Cuba had unraveled, due in no small measure to the dramatic Nixon-Kissinger opening to Communist China. If the United States could have diplomatic relations with a faraway power such as China, why not have relations with a small island off its coast? A Harris opinion poll, taken in the spring of 1973, showed that 51% of the American public favored normal relations, while 33% opposed. Key Democrats, as well as Republicans, openly questioned the wisdom of the embargo and pressed the administration to change what they considered to be an anachronistic and self-defeating policy. As early as January 1973, a caucus of moderate Republicans, including then-Representative Gerald Ford, known as the Wednesday Group, issued a report entitled A Détente with Cuba, which urged Nixon to consider normalizing relations. In April 1974, the Senate passed a resolution, sponsored by Senators Claiborne Pell and Jacob Javits, calling for a full congressional and executive branch review of Cuba policy. In September, Javits and Pell became the first senior senators to travel to Cuba to meet with Fidel Castro. The Castro government interpreted our trip as an opening, a positive step on the long road back to a normalization of relations, the senators concluded after a three-and-a-half-hour dinner with the Cuban leader and his aides. A propitious moment has arrived in United States-Cuban relations when it is possible to begin to talk. The time is ripe for beginning the process of normalization. Internationally, the White House faced even greater demands for normalization. A rebellion was brewing against the OAS diplomatic and trade sanctions adopted under U.S. pressure in 1964. In the spring of 1970, Chilean President Eduardo Frey announced that his country would break the OAS embargo and restore trade with Cuba. Diplomatic relations were renewed in November by newly elected President Salvador Allende. Peru reopened an embassy in Havana in 1972. Argentina restored diplomatic ties in 1973. More importantly, Argentina demanded that the Argentine subsidiaries of U.S. automakers sell vehicles to Cuba and, along with Peru, proposed that the OAS formally lift sanctions and allow member states to restore ties and trade, ending Cuba's political and economic isolation. Several key countries were quietly going AWOL from the 1964 sanctions and use our evident intransigence on Cuba to play to their domestic left. Kissinger's aides reported. In most of these countries, U.S. movement on Cuba would be a considerable plus in our relationship. As Secretary of State, 
Kissinger found that the issue of Cuba dominated meetings with his Latin American counterparts. As the OAS initiative to lift sanctions against Cuba advanced through various regional meetings in 1974 and 1975, he held extensive behind-the-scenes discussions with Latin American foreign ministers. Let me be very frank with you, Kissinger told Argentine Foreign Minister Alberto Vignes at a September 16, 1974 meeting discussing the OAS initiative. Cuba can do very little for us. From the foreign policy standpoint, it would help remove anomalies in our relations with other countries. Cuba in and of itself is not very important to the United States. The Cuba issue is significant only as it affects our relations with other Latin American countries. But President Gerald Ford's new administration faced domestic political constraints on its ability to change the framework of U.S.-Cuban relations, Kissinger explained to Vignes. We have a full quota of domestic opposition, and we are not looking for more. At the same time, Kissinger noted that the U.S. position was evolving now that Nixon was gone. How far the situation will evolve depends on the United States domestic scene, and it depends upon how the Cubans behave. Foreign Minister Vignes pressed Kissinger on whether there would be bilateral contacts between the United States and Cuba in the aftermath of the OAS vote to rescind sanctions. That has occurred to me, Kissinger replied. We have no contacts now with Cuba. The Secret Talks Kissinger was lying to Vignes. By then, his office was already in direct contact with the Cubans. Only eight weeks before, on July 18, 1974, Frank Mankiewicz had delivered Kissinger's initial message to Castro. After reading it, Castro asked, Will you take back a letter? When Mankiewicz returned, he brought Kissinger a handwritten note from Castro accepting the U.S. offer to initiate a dialogue. Kissinger then asked Mankiewicz to help facilitate secret talks with the Cubans. On September 14th, Mankiewicz traveled to New York to meet with Teofilo Acosta, chargé d'affaires at the Cuban mission at the United Nations. The ostensible purpose of the meeting was to arrange another TV interview for Fidel Castro, this time with Dan Rather of CBS News. But Mankiewicz told Acosta that he would be bringing another message from Kissinger. Two weeks later, as Castro prepared for the CBS interview, Mankiewicz met with him privately and briefed him on Kissinger's new communication. Kissinger had chosen his deputy, Lawrence Eagleburger, as his representative in the clandestine talks, Mankiewicz said. Castro responded that he would appoint a veteran diplomat and member of the Cuban Communist Party, Ramon Sanchez Parodi, to represent Cuba. When he returned to Washington, Mankiewicz passed this information on to Kissinger's office. As an intermediary, Mankiewicz provided a degree of plausible denial. He was a prominent liberal, particularly on the issue of Cuba. His distance from a Republican administration made him an ideal emissary, Kissinger wrote in his memoirs. He could convey a message, but he could not drag us into anything irrevocable. If the story leaked, U.S. officials could simply say that Mankiewicz had acted on his own. Indeed, even by Kissinger's standards of furtive diplomacy, this special project was shrouded in extreme secrecy. There was total secrecy about this, recalled his deputy William D. Rogers, who became a key player in and advocate of the clandestine talks with Cuba.
Kissinger kept his secret diplomacy tightly guarded, out of sight of the National Security Council and away from his own State Department. Only Kissinger, Eagleburger, and myself knew about this initiative, noted Rogers. We were afraid of leaks. We were dealing with dynamite. Not even President Ford, it appears, was fully briefed. We need to talk about Cuba, Kissinger informed the new president on August 15, 1974, six days after Nixon resigned. Yet he did not tell Ford about the initial exchange of messages with Castro. When Ford asked if, you have any suggestions for a Cuban policy change, Kissinger responded disingenuously, there have been many appeals from Cuba. Castro wants to meet with me. The issue is the trade embargo. He noted, we need to loosen up or we isolate ourselves. A month later, Kissinger informed Ford, we are being moved into relations with Cuba, but it should not appear to the American people that it is being forced on us. So I would hold tough at the OAS, he recommended. But we should start with low-level talks with the Cubans to see what we can get for it. In late September, as Mankiewicz got ready to deliver a second message to Castro, Kissinger obliquely informed Ford about the feeler to Fidel. On Cuba, our policy is to give grudgingly in the OAS and send a message to Castro to see what we could get bilaterally. But, Kissinger told the president, we can't let that pipsqueak drive us. Throughout the fall of 1974, Mankiewicz remained Kissinger's special channel. He continued to ferry messages to Castro and returned to New York in November and December to meet with officials at Cuba's UN mission, arranging for Cuba's emissary, Sanchez Paradis, to be given a multiple entry visa to enter the United States. These efforts set the stage for a series of secret talks in 1975 and early 1976, the first direct dialogue between Washington and Havana aimed at restoring relations since their rupture in January 1961. Yet the sour state of U.S.-Cuban relations almost sabotaged the first clandestine meeting. Despite Eagleburger's directive to the U.S. consulate in Mexico to provide Sanchez Parodi with a special visa, a consular official placed him on a list of designated threats to U.S. national security. When Sanchez Parodi arrived at JFK Airport, an immigration official intercepted him. The INS official saw the visa, issued me a red card, and sent me to a closed room, Sanchez Parodi recalled. Waiting for him outside, Nestor Garcia, first secretary of Cuban's UN mission, realized there was a problem. As soon I knew what was going on, I called Eagleburger at the State Department, he recounted. Eagleburger reacted quickly to rectify this diplomatic insult. I was in the room for a few minutes until some guy came, apologized, and released me, remembers Sanchez Parodi. On Saturday morning, January 11th, Eagleburger and Mankiewicz flew into New York on the Eastern Airlines shuttle to meet Sanchez Parodi and Garcia. Their first secret meeting took place in the most public of places, a bustling cafeteria at LaGuardia Airport. After Mankiewicz made the necessary introductions, the four men held exploratory talks on how to engage in a substantive dialogue on U.S.-Cuban relations. At one point, an indigent blind man who was hawking ballpoint pens interrupted their conversation. He tossed a bunch of pens on the table, Garcia recalls. 
The only way we could get rid of him was to buy some, so we did. As he left, we were thinking that there were microphones hidden in some or all of the pens that could record our conversation, a possible sign of the presence of the CIA or FBI. Kissinger's office devoted extensive preparations to this meeting. On January 2nd, Assistant Secretary Rogers presented Kissinger with a comprehensive checklist of issues. From Cuba, Washington would want compensation for expropriated properties, payments on defaulted bonds and postal debt, the release of U.S. political prisoners, improvements on human rights, a halt to mischievous involvement in the Puerto Rico issue, restraint on support for Latin American insurgents, and preservation of the principle that Cuba will not be a base for offensive weapons. From the United States, Cuba would want an end of economic sanctions, removal of U.S. restrictions on third-country shipping and aviation connections, a halt to aerial surveillance, a cessation of violent exile operations, the return of Guantanamo, and at least tacit support for lifting the 1964 OAS sanctions, allowing Cuba's reintegration into inter-American economic and political institutions. I think we should avoid large issues like Guantanamo, trade, and expropriation payments in the beginning, Rogers argued in a secret, no-disclosure, eyes-only cover memo to Kissinger. The early meetings should be limited to questions which will test whether this is the time and place for major progress. Rogers also provided Kissinger with the first draft of an aid memoir for the Cubans on the general U.S. position on talks toward better relations. Such meetings as these, it began, can define the matters on both sides which our governments may determine should be discussed. Kissinger ordered substantial rewrites of this document, which would determine the tone with which the U.S. negotiators would open the talks. Indeed, Rogers wrote three more drafts before Kissinger gave it to Eagleburger the night before the meeting with the Cubans. We are meeting here to explore the possibilities for a more normal relationship between our two countries, stated the final document that Eagleburger provided to the Cubans at LaGuardia Airport. It contained no demand for internal changes to Cuba's political system. In both thought and language, Eagleburger told Sanchez Parodi and Garcia over coffee, the two-page document reflected Kissinger's conception of détente and the congenial diplomatic tone the United States wanted for the talks with Cuba. The ideological differences between us are wide, but the fact that such talks will not bridge the ideological differences does not mean that they cannot be useful in addressing concrete issues which it is in the interest of both countries to resolve. The United States is able and willing to make progress on such issues, even with socialist nations with whom we are in fundamental ideological disagreement, as the recent progress in our relations with Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China has shown. The Cuban emissaries responded that they had no instructions to actually negotiate, that their task was to listen and report back to their authorities in Havana. Sanchez Parodi did, however, offer what he termed personal comments on U.S.-Cuban relations and the need to lift the embargo before other issues could be addressed. With the blockade in place, he stated, no aspects of normalizing relations could be discussed. The meeting seemed to grow tense when Eagleburger warned that, for us, this problem is not the most important in our foreign policy. Sanchez Parodi responded by noting that Cubans were not Chinese and did not look like Chinese, 
but we can have more patience than the Chinese. Nevertheless, Eagleburger stressed that the United States wanted to continue the dialogue and meet again. To facilitate covert communications, he provided Garcia with a contact sheet, names, pseudonyms, telephone numbers, and coded language to use. Eagleburger himself would use the code name Mr. Henderson. The conversation code the Cuban and U.S. officials were to employ for future telephone communications read like this. How is your health? We want to meet. I have a slight headache, but otherwise I am well. Agreed. I don't feel well. I will report on this and call you back. How is your sister? Where? How is your wife? Washington, at Eagleburger's home, or... How is your brother Henry? New York, LaGuardia. Do you like New York? When? It's nice except for X months during the year. X days from now. I have to go out now. I'll call you again at X time. X time. In the aftermath of the first meeting, Kissinger's office moved quickly to build a good-faith foundation for further talks. Assistant Secretary Rogers wrote to the Interdepartmental Committee for Internal Security, chaired by the Justice Department, to request that the 25-mile travel restriction on Cuban diplomats at the United Nations be expanded to a radius of 250 miles so they could travel to Washington. Several days later, the State Department arranged a multiple-entry visa for Cuba's Deputy Foreign Minister, José Vieira. Sanchez Parodi's designated alternate if a meeting was scheduled when he could not attend. At the same time, Rogers ordered a reconsideration of U.S. prohibitions against trade with Cuba by U.S. corporations through foreign subsidiaries. That review led to a decision, announced February 12th, to license Litton Industries of Canada to export $517,000 in office furniture to Cuba. To make sure that the Cubans understood the diplomatic significance of these actions, Eagleburger contacted Nestor Garcia. When a major snowstorm prevented Eagleburger from flying to New York for a face-to-face -face meeting, Garcia called him from a public payphone near Yankee Stadium to receive a briefing on the U.S. gesture of goodwill. Three times Garcia had to ask Eagleburger to stop dictating when his pen froze. The two joked that these were the pens Garcia bought from the blind man at LaGuardia. To assure that Fidel himself understood, in late January, Kissinger again used Mankiewicz as his private courier to send another secret message to Castro, describing the steps the United States had taken and reiterating U.S. interest in continuing the talks. The United States is taking these steps as an expression of its interest in exploring the normalization of relations, according to a draft of the note. The January 11th meeting was useful, the secret message continued, and a further meeting of officials is now appropriate. Rogers hoped that the next meeting might soon take place in Panama. I'm going to Panama for a Canal Company board meeting on Friday, January 31st, he reported to Kissinger. Larry could be there in a few hours. Larry can arrange a meeting easily through his special channel with Garcia. Rogers's memo indicated the expectations the U.S. side carried into the talks with Cuba. We suggested in the message, which Mankiewicz is now carrying to Havana, that we meet again. They have had time to digest the earlier message, which Larry gave them, that we need a quid pro quo. 
The Cubans had nothing to say at the earlier meeting beyond the tired precondition that the blockade be ended. I think we can properly expect something substantive now, and Larry needs the sun. But Kissinger preferred to leave the ball in Cuba's court. Panama just involves one more country, growled on Rogers's memo. Let Cuba make the next move. Fidel Castro evidently noted the significance of these early U.S. gestures and responded with gestures of his own. Meeting with Mankiewicz at the end of January, Castro reacted positively to Washington's suggestion that he allow family visits to and from the island. Rather than make this an official U.S. demand, Mankiewicz had been instructed to raise the possibility of family visits as his own idea. That way, as a memo from Rogers to Kissinger put it, he would emphasize to the Cubans the importance of the human rights issue to the normalization process in a way that will permit Castro to move without feeling Washington was intervening in Cuba's internal affairs. Significantly, the Cubans also softened their long-standing demand that the trade embargo be lifted before any negotiations could take place. In an interview with Le Monde, Cuban Deputy Prime Minister Carlos Rafael Rodriguez made conciliatory remarks about the Ford administration, noting that while ending the U.S. embargo remained Cuba's condition for normalizing relations, lifting it could comprise various phases and assume various forms. In January, the Cuban government also offered to exchange its most famous American prisoner, Larry Lunt, a CIA agent captured in 1965, for the Puerto Rican nationalist Lolita Lebron. In addition, Rogers reported to Kissinger that Cuban intelligence officials had contacted CIA station chiefs in several countries, indicating that Cuba is prepared to consider better relations. But the Cubans made no move to set up another negotiating session with the United States, nor did they take what U.S. officials considered to be a truly substantive, responsive gesture, such as releasing American prisoners or allowing family visits. As the winter of 1975 progressed, Assistant Secretary Rogers became concerned that the window of opportunity for the executive branch to seize the initiative was closing as congressional pressure for changing U.S. policy mounted and the OAS moved toward lifting multilateral sanctions. The Cuban nettle gets pricklier all the time, he wrote in a secret February 20th memo to Kissinger. Pressures to move are going to increase considerably over the next few months, and our bargaining strength with the Cubans will decline accordingly. Rogers recommended a four-step interrelated strategy to position the United States in Latin America and with the Cubans. 1. Over the next two months, we begin to indicate that we can support a change in 1964 voting procedures that would allow sanctions to be lifted at the May OAS meeting. 2. That we in the meanwhile relieve some of the pressure, both from the U.S. private sector and from friendly governments, by dropping the ban on third-country subsidiary trade in non-U.S. goods with Cuba. This will be taken as an important gesture by the Latins. It will avoid conflict with Canada and hopefully with Mexico, but it will be seen everywhere as a promise of more to come. 3. That between now and the May meeting, we begin to explore whether we can come up with something with the Cubans on the big issues between us, particularly expropriation and blocked assets. I urge we do this before, not after, the OAS meeting. 
I do so because I think our bargaining power, whatever it may be now, will be less in June. Finally, Rogers recommended that the U.S. attempt to strike an interim deal of prisoners for baseball. Using baseball diplomacy to advance relations with Cuba, the same way the sport of ping-pong had contributed to the U.S. opening to China, represented a potentially dramatic move by Washington. A few weeks before, at a Christmas party in New York City, the commissioner of baseball, Bowie Kuhn, had approached Kissinger about taking a team to Cuba in March 1975 for a series of exhibition games that would be broadcast on U.S. television. Followed up on January 14th with a letter stating that he would soon be meeting with the head of Cuba's National Institute of Sports, Physical Education and Recreation, Instituto Nacional de Deportes, Educación Física y Recreación, to finalize the details and that Premier Castro favors this project. A baseball series between the two nations would be a major diplomatic opening, Rogers reported to Kissinger on February 13th.